We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the Gator Nation Football Podcast with your hosts, Alan Williams and James DiVirgilio. Now we know we're just a bunch of average stiffs. Welcome to the Gator Nation football podcast. I thought about saying like shout fest, frustration fest, therapeutic fest. I don't know. Whatever it is, we are here. We are the Gator Nation football podcast. We are brought to you by BetUS. I'm alongside my co-host, Alan Williams, and I am James DiVirgilio, and we say this every week, Alan. We feel like next week is going to be a straightforward week. We're going to be able to just come in here and knock out the things that need to be discussed. And then yet another major thing happens that requires a meta-analysis, a deep dive, trying to explain what went wrong in the game, what's going wrong with the program, what could be done to fix it, where do we stand on things. And of course, we're going to do all of those things in this episode. So fasten your seatbelts or sit back and relax, whichever one you want, because we're going to bring it to you. Yeah, glad to be on the mic. I'm actually hyped to record this episode. All the dust is settled. We've got our thoughts in order. As you said, so much to talk about with this Gator football program. Glad to be here with you on a Monday afternoon, though, James. Yeah, wouldn't want to be anywhere else. As always, if you like this content, follow us on social media. Sub to our YouTube channel where I break down each game, including the LSU one, which will be posted on Tuesday or Wednesday of this week. Fantastic as always. Oh, thanks, Alan. Become a patron on Patreon. And as always, the shout out to B-Red and Bama Shane for helping us out produce the show as well as produce the videos. Could not do it without you. One other little bit of housekeeping. You will hear ads on this show now. We got picked up by another podcast content hoster. We actually had an episode once where we talked about how this works. Uh, But anyway, we got picked up by somebody different. Thanks to all of you listening. That's why this stuff happens. So we appreciate you. It certainly keeps Alan and I going. And of course, we appreciate those who give us a dono. That's right, dono. There's two. Two dono counters, three, four. I don't know how I'm going to say it for. But regardless, we love our patrons. We love our listeners that don't give as well. We love you all the same. But we celebrate our patrons each week in this space by announcing their names. So we had several new ones here, Alan. In the small dono category, we had Adam White. Welcome in. Evan W., who comes in with an annual small dono. In the Warful dono category, we have Dr. Robert Pello. What's Welcome up? Welcome. there, Dr. Robert. 
uh, in the Spurrier slash Trask Dono category, or almost right there, we have uh, Clark Futch coming in. Welcome in. AR Donos, we got a level up from Adam. If you put your first name in, you really, you're like a, it's going to be like a Google email address, by the way, like James at Gmail, right? Or something like that. Uh, you know, Adam, Mike, whoever you are, if you first get the claim on that, on the GNFP patron page, you're really killing it. Good job. XL Donos, we have uh, Wesley Heisek, who's coming in. I read last week, but I read him as Wesley Heisek, but really he wants to be read as the Dan Kant Kroot Bomb. So my apologies to you, Wesley. Jay Felly. Jay Felly sounds like a 90s rapper, maybe. Yeah, Jay a mixture Felly of like Jabu. R. Kelly and Nelly, something yeah, about that. Something going on there. That's a good one. Hundo Bomb from Chris Folsom, who tends to come with the Hundo Bomb every coming year. Coming in big. Coming in hot. He's Dono legend. And then, Alan, there was some momentous news. We had what I'm going to call the Dono of Donos. Knocking out one Alexander Leventhal, who had the title of a Dono of Donos, the highest Dono we've ever received, from the artist who wants to be known as The Big Homie. Love it. That was his nickname. He had a friend who I guess was called the little homie. So it's big homie and little homie. Uh, but thanks to homie. your support, you are now on the throne. You've knocked out little Peyton, who, by the way, little Peyton had the worst run <laughs> Disastrous in, the history, in the history of the Gator Nation football podcast. He's still excellent against Tennessee. He wants you to know. But wow, horrible run as king, hopefully for the big homie. Things go better. They almost have to. And uh, yeah, I mean Georgia looming. But either way, no loss this first week for the big homie. Yeah, he's fine. He's gonna he's gonna be safe through the bye week. All right. So Dono Legends, uh, there's been an upgrade of the threshold. Now to jump in here, you got to hit five hundred dollars of total support. But I'm gonna read these off. And uh, day, one Daytona Steve gave me a little personal challenge to see if I can read all of these in one breath. I have no idea that's possible. I've not prepared for this, but I'm gonna try it. Okay, you ready? Here we go. <sighs> Lil Payton, Constantine, Double O, Alexander Leventhal, Diego Rivera, Bill Hood, James Newton, Nathan Jeter, Stashby, Bobby Boucher, Frank Marshallisi, Mike Wechter, Tim Kane, Nicholas Isaac, Mike, Mark Jackson, Tim Hondrick, James Truett, Gus O'Leary, Brad Wilson, Mark Mitchell, Chris Folsom, Dr. Matthew Galloway, Aaron Jeter, Jason Landry, Michael Reeves, Jason Johnson, Zach Sparks. <laughs> so close. Cooper and Kylie Craig, Mark Rubenstein, Tyler Romery, Craig Scarado. I... I started to get a little giggly there because I thought I was going to make it, and I did not. You were rolling. I was really impressed. When you made it to Mark Mitchell, I thought, wow, he might actually do this. And then... then I lost focus. You know, That's what happens sometimes in a, in life and in reading the Dota and the Legends. But thanks to all of you. All right, we recover here. James, the Gators lost. And another wild one. 49 to 42... If you've given me a lot of predictions and opportunities to pick the score, I don't think I would have gotten to that one. So that's called football for you. Wildness can occur, especially in this rivalry. Let's go to our keys to the game. Hmm. For me, third down percentage for LSU, they were at 41%. That's probably too good. And then QB runs, yards per carry, there was not a lot of good QB runs. Only one went over 10 yards. So they did not approach that yards per carry mark. Different sort of game. You talked about wanting to see 250 yards passing. Right? This is I wanted to hold LSU to 250 yes, or fewer. That's right. Sorry. Which which we did. For me. Amazing. We did. We phenomenal. 133 passing yards. That's great. We should have we should have won, right? So I yes. 
that should, if that was the story of it, that's hilarious. Game over. I, I read that invertedly because now it doesn't make any sense. But and rushing yards for the Gators, two hundred fifty plus. Obviously, did not reach that one hundred thirty eight. But because of circumstances in this game, we threw for a lot more yards than we ran for. Which again, the script for both of these teams coming into the game completely flipped. So I predicted 32-17. You were 35-24. We were way, way off. our By far the most we've been off the entire season. And let me ask you this. Get to our opening thoughts section. The, in the words of one Chris Musgrove, he's asking us before the game, is there any reason I should not bet on the Gators except for LSU voodoo? Well, we had some LSU voodoo. But maybe we should have seen this coming. This was almost the exact same narrative coming into last year. An undermanned, underfire LSU team missing a ton of their best players somehow come out with a win in wild fashion against Florida. Yeah, it's not that, you know, I think we had said, I can't remember everything we said, obviously, but I think we had said that there's far more worlds where Florida obviously blows out LSU. But there were there were some worlds where LSU wins this football game. There, there, that's always a thing. Totally. But it was skewed way to our side was the bottom line. Like way to our side was excused. But but yeah, this is LSU voodoo. This is two years in a row, Alan, where we have essentially lost to an LSU team missing four or five of their absolute best players. The line jumped throughout the week higher and higher in favor of Florida. And more and more guys went out they during had the week. More and more guys going out. We're not just talking about a guy. We're talking about top level, top talented, some Allie guys Gay, future NFL Ricks. players. Yes. And you're like, okay, look, LSU does have a better recruiting profile than we have. They're slightly more talented as a depth-based roster. But when you're losing six, seven starters, you're losing a guy who has half of your passing offense and a receiver in Booty. You're down to your backup running back. You've been the worst rushing team in the SEC. You're one of the worst rushing teams in the entire country. Now, all of a sudden, that looks like a game that you can't win, much like last year's game looked like. And that allowed LSU to have the biggest home deficit line they'd had in 13 years. That's what all of this was in the pregame. And now we come out and it's like, oh, should we have seen this coming? Well, the weird thing, Alan, is this isn't shocking. It's probably not shocking to you. And it's probably not shocking to most of you who have followed the Dan Mullen regime. That's the weird part is in reality, this loss should be, in my opinion to me, Alan, more shocking to me. This should be unbelievably utterly unacceptable but i sit here thinking it's not that surprising I, there's a stat that they should it wasn't even at the end of the game i think maybe third way through uh our th- probably through the fourth quarter or third quarter it showed uh davis price's rushing stats for the year and he had eclipsed them already in that game this was a team coming in that couldn't get out of their own way. Now, they made a lot that said, oh, they started to run the ball late against Kentucky. Well, Kentucky's going to let you run the ball late in the game when they're up by 28. Game's if you, over. If you yeah. want to run the ball, feel free. Uh, I, I, It's almost inexplicable, except for I can find some reasons to explain it. All right, this is a topic that I'm fascinated about, is how Gator Nation is coming out of this game because I think it's really complicated and a really diverse set of opinions. Like, how did you feel after the game? What was your emotional state? I sat on my couch and I thought to myself, 
I'm so frustrated, not with the loss. This season was already lost, but I'm so frustrated with something I've said so many times in this podcast. And I promised myself and I'm promising all of you right now in this podcast that I'm not going to try to repeat things that I have said for the past, you know, four years we've done Dan Mullen's teams. I'm not going to do that because if you've listened at all, you already know what I'm going to say. And if you're a new listener, you can go back and listen to last year's LSU podcast where I'm going to go through all the different things that have happened. And you can listen after Georgia losses when I talk about Grantham two years ago. So those things are out there. So I felt very frustrated, Alan, that you and I are sitting here doing this podcast each week. And yeah, I put a lot of time into this for sure. I like to think I know what I'm doing sometimes, but I shouldn't be able to sit here and and try to get on top of the church steeple and ring a bell and sound the alarm and say, look, these things are not good. Have last year end and say, if we keep Grantham, more bad things are going to happen. Here's what's on film. Here's what's on film. Here's what's on film. Here's what's on film. And then it all just happens according to script. Like the film says it's going to happen again. And so you're just frustrated. And I'm frustrated for the players, which is what I said for Trask last year. I'm frustrated for all of these players. There's no doubt these players are giving max effort. They are trying their best. And that's what makes me feel frustrated is all of this stuff is preventable. There's no reason why we should have lost to LSU, but we did. And I think my frustration is interesting because I'm frustrated. And then I'm also, like I mentioned after our loss against Kentucky, I'm just... I'm I'm depressed because I feel like I'm in a hopeless place. I have no reason to believe. And we're going to talk about this later. I'm not going to get into it yet. I have no reason to believe, though, based upon Dan Mullen's history, that he is going to do anything to alleviate my hopelessness. Because this is just a recurring movie script that just plays over and over and over again. And so I, as much as I'd like to be happy because we got Anthony Richardson out there and he did pretty much what I thought he would do, to what good is that? Because we still have 15 other questions that Mullen is seemingly not going to answer in the right direction. So I was frustrated, but I wasn't like sad. It wasn't like I took the loss hard. I wasn't like, oh man, we lost to LSU. It's just like, why are, why are we doing this to ourselves? That's perhaps the recurring question. Why does this keep happening? And why does it have to happen? And why can't someone just get a hold of Dan Mullen and say, listen, you're a smart guy. Just make a few changes. No one has all the right answers. But that seems to be an impossibility. So, of course, I, I really want us to win the game. But as the game progressed, I think we had clarity. Not just us. We've had clarity for a while. But I think the world was waking up to some of the things we've been saying. Or maybe just the what seemed maybe like had some question marks or what should we do or there's some discussion around it became clear. Two things. It became clear, I think, to everybody that Anthony Richardson should be the starter. And we're going to talk about him, but that was unbelievable. I loved it. As soon as he comes in the game, I'm like, in the second half, I'm like, this is it. I said something along the lines in our thread, this is maybe the turning point for all of Florida football. Because now, for me, the best case scenarios have opened back up. We were talking last week about transfer. We're going to get to his comments, but about him, what's the darkest timeline is him transferring. Now that's still in play, I guess, because we don't know what's going to happen in the next couple of weeks, but all of a sudden that door is back open again where he's going to play at Florida. And guess what? Uh, Todd Grantham's contract ends after the season. 
it's hard to see a world in which he is re-upped. So the Grantham experiment, I think, will come to an end. It almost has to. If it doesn't, we might have riots in the streets. So those two things became, I think, clear. If if they're not, if those aren't the outcomes, then I don't I don't even know what would have to have happened to for you know things to kind of reverse course. So actually I was feeling kind of zen about it and actually a little bit hopeful. Our friend Justin New Kid Sites, I think he texted another thread. I got everything I wanted out of this game. I kind of feel the same way. That it was probably good that LSU, you know, pile drove us into the ground with the running game. Because that's it's not like you can go, well, I don't know. Maybe they, you know, they're good. They're not good. They're not good at that, that's for sure. And so clarity is maybe what not just us, right? So I think inside the Gator Nation podcast world, there's been a lot of clarity or a lot of at least I think we know we should try and we kind of got the outcome with Richardson that we wanted. It's kind of ultimately maybe a good thing, a good day. Well, that is a great thing. And, you know, the film doesn't lie. Interpreting the film sometimes is tricky. You can be wrong. There is a level of personal satisfaction that you get. You know, Alan, you and I go on this podcast. I obviously tend to have some wildly strong opinions at times that people like to comment on, you know, out there in the, in the sphere. Um, contrary to what some people may think, uh, I definitely know for sure that there are so many things I don't know. Although on film, I felt pretty confident, of course, that Richardson was a better quarterback than Emory. And that's just on, again, we said a bunch of times now, if he gets to the play, he could, we could be proven wrong. On right. That. And I like to say, like what I said about Trask was you can tell these things by how a quarterback does things, even in a small sample size, you can see it. If they're doing it, then they're going to do it when given a chance. So of course there's a level of personal satisfaction when you're putting yourself out there week in and week out. And you're saying, look, I'm not just making this stuff up. This isn't just some guess. I'm not just out here winging it. There's evidence. Here's the evidence. There's a level of that. But what comes with that is the extra frustration of like, what if Richardson played versus Alabama and Kentucky and now? And we're going to talk about how maybe in one week Richardson went from being, quote, unable to manage a game to doing that. Perhaps he had the greatest week of revelationary practice anyone's ever seen. I don't know. What I do know is I think he was always capable of that. But yeah, there's a level now, Alan, where, of course, if, if, and I'm going to say if, we're going to get to Dan Mullen's quotes after the game, mm-hmm. which were less than glowing about your phenomenal quarterback who scored four times in a row on the road against LSU in a game that you were dead in. And the praise you give him is basically no praise. That's asinine. So that's what pours cold water. It's a wet blanket all over the goodness. So yeah, if the game ended and Dan Mullen came out and said, you know what? This was a nut kick. We have issues on defense. We have to get them fixed. We can't play defense. We couldn't stop a counter run play, which we're going to talk about at all. But you know what we did find? We found that number 15... He answered the bell. He brought us back. He played a heck of a game. This guy's got sky-high ceiling talent, and I love 15. By the way, five came in on third down and long, and he converted yeah. to third down. That's great team character. How about you say that? But you know what he does say? None of that. None of that. And instead, it's a wet blanket. It's cold water. It's ridiculous. And so how can I feel excited when I have a coach who's almost attempting to self-sabotage? I don't know. So it's a mixture of those thoughts, a mixture of those things. But certainly, Alan, you're correct. The main storyline from this game in the future is going to be Anthony Richardson, assuming assuming that he actually 
becomes a starter, which apparently everyone in the world thinks he should be, but the smartest guy in the room, Dan Mullen, who's smarter than the whole rest of the world and everything put on film and everyone else because he's Dan Mullen. So he must know something no one else does. That's frustrating. Indeed. But we have a chance here to see maybe the Richardson era come to fruition. I'm excited about that. And so that drive. So early second half post pick six by Emory, or by Emory Richardson comes in the game. It, and it's fragile at this moment, right? Obviously, Dan, maybe not obviously. Dan gives him a look, although we thought he would have shown up in the Kentucky game a couple weeks ago. But he gets a chance to move the team down the field. And the, the first two throws, you know, are good throws, but are contested throws. And then you get the taunting penalty. And from there, just rolling. And it, and you said something on the thread that's like, man, I'm so invested in this drive. And it felt like, weirdly, because of maybe Mellon's preferences or persona that if he does something wrong here, he makes a mistake or something bad happens, you know, I don't know. Somebody fumbles or something like that. Maybe we don't see AR back in the game. Maybe we don't ever see him again. But he did answer the bell. And he looked from the first snap like fantastic. Every time he's been in the game and they've just gone run, run, run. And the commenter's like, yeah, he's really a a run first quarterback. And I'm like, you guys have not been paying attention. Or at least if we're wrong about this, we're wrong about this. But the guy looks awesome throwing the ball. And it was so impressive. So just walk me through how you're feeling on that first AR drive of the second half. Yeah, invested was the right word. All the other times Richardson has come in, you knew it was just for some plays. But you felt it. You felt like that was an, a very unusual time for him to come in. That's not what Dan Mullen wanted to do. It was not part of the script. Mm-hmm. And I felt like Ant- Anthony Richardson felt it. Like he felt that this drive, if he scores a touchdown here, I think he knew this was his moment to become a starting quarterback. And look, make no mistake about it. If you've played competitive sports and you are on the bench behind someone that you think you are better than, even if they're your friend, when there is a real opportunity to take that spot, you are going to be extra dialed in. I thought the emotion he showed, he's an emotional guy anyway. The big gator chomp, the two-point conversion. Like there was, there was a lot of like, yes, this is mine. But that's also what high-level championship mindseted athletes do is when their opportunity comes up when their number gets called and they get a chance to put something on film they put it on film you and I Alan have had discussions on this very podcast especially during the early years on the difference between practice players and game players and sometimes guys are great in practice and not good in the game I'm not a practice we don't know that but we know for sure that that performance that Richardson put on starting with that drive in that moment was different All of a sudden, the receivers felt it. They knew they had a chance to get the ball no matter where they were on the field. You can see it on film. The routes are being run across the board cleaner. The routes are run fine with Emory, but there's different routes. Their head's snapping around quickly. The ball's going to get put on them on time. All of a sudden, you get a tight end who's not in the game, right? You have Zipper or you have Gamble. They're just there. They were open, by the way. They're wide open on Emory plays. Multiple plays for Gamble. He was wide open. Emory never looks at him. All of a sudden, it's Gamble time. So it changes your stock as a team. It changes the outcome and the outlook. Unfortunately, it didn't help the defense out of lick. You have a, you have a talent coming in and rescuing you, and you can't get 
more than one stop, right? So we'll talk about that too. But of course, of course, that was the key drive. That was the moment we haven't seen Dan Mullen face at Florida. Healthy quarterback on the bench. We never got, Kyle Trask never got this chance, right? Franks had to be out. He comes in and then he stuck with him. So that is the silver lining. And he did put him back in after Emory comes in and picks up that big third down. And that's the second part I was going to say is Emory played two more plays after that. And I was about to break my television screen because it was like, listen, you can't, you can't do this. Emory almost throws another pick. He forces a ball into a, into a dig route. He hands the ball off one more time and they bring in Richardson. And that I think was the real moment. That was the, you're still just, you just don't know what Dan Mullen's doing. And I don't know what he's going to do in the bye week. Look, Alan, it wouldn't surprise me if Emory is our starter and that's unreal, but it's possible. It's possible. That's ridiculous. It's possible. But I think for everyone that watched the game, you saw all the things I've been trying my best to talk about on this podcast and highlight on the film review. He did all of them. In fact, he did even more. Yeah, it was awesome. He made multiple full field reads incredibly quickly. It was some of the sickest stuff I've seen from a guy his age. Unbelievable stuff. Almost instantly reversing the narrative. This is a guy who can run and only throw deep, which was always total crap. But it shows you what happens in media circles. They just go listen to what the coaches say. They Google search and find up some beat writers. They're not watching film most of the time. These guys are not watching film. So they just repeat what's told to them. And by the end of the game, of course, they're like, oh my gosh, look at the balls this guy's throwing. He's just putting, I mean, these are perfect. These are dimes. So yes, we'll get to him a little bit more fully. And sadly, Alan, no one's going to remember Richardson right now. That's the reality. If you just fell asleep and you woke up and you watched the post-game highlights, you know what they showed? They showed one pass play of his and they showed the pick. And that was the discussion. LSU ran all over us. And that's what happens in football. It's a game for winners, not losers. Richardson is a guy Florida fans know right now, but don't think your friends across the country watched that LSU game and saw Richardson carve them up. And that's an interesting thing for him too. So lots of stuff to unpack there. Okay, so the Florida offense, here we go. We talked about this inverted ourselves again 488 yards which is a good day that's a winning day most of the time yeah Dan Mullen thinks that yards win we have more yards we won <laughs> we probably out coach so 138 them. yards rushing which is fine not what we've been putting up when we've won 350 yards passing so that that's how we put up 49 points right there only 3.9 yards per rush it was a struggle and here's the big number four interceptions obviously that it's the story of the game. 7-14 to 14 on third down. Much better in the second half, obviously. Um, Emory, 12-19, One touchdown, two picks, 16 yards rushing. Richardson, 10-19, 167. Three TDs, two interceptions, 37 yards rushing, one TD. Various amounts of guys with carries and receptions. You know, nobody else really jumped out. So interesting, interesting stat line there. Let's go ahead and we've already started talking about him. Let's talk about AR a little bit first. I'll, I'll jump in here. My my first question here is, was it everything we were hoping for? And for me, yes. Like, I wanted to see him do the things he did. And he did it almost from the first play, second play. Or the second play where uh, Shorter, you know, doesn't complete the catch, gets taunted. He cycles through those reads so quickly and finds Shorter. And Shorter's not that open, but he puts the ball on him. And then from there, the decisiveness is what was so compelling. The conviction of where to throw the ball and when, he was not uncertain about where he was going. 
think about the play to um, the touchdown to Pierce. That ball had to be thrown on time and with velocity, and it's a touchdown. If it's late, it's probably a pick. And he was so impressive, not just his size and his physical attributes and his arm, which we knew about that going in. It was the stuff that you were hoping you were going to see, the stuff he had kind of tantalized with, his ability to go through his progressions, put the ball out on time and with conviction. It was awesome. It was it was peak. It was phenomenal, right? Again, you can evaluate. And his first real playing time. You can evaluate young quarterbacks all you want. You're on the road. Sure, it's a very muted LSU crowd. Doesn't matter. You're on the road, and you're also against a team that's putting equal athletes out there to you. And they're also your age, right? So you can say, okay, in the case of – in the case of Richardson, he's facing guys that are pretty much from his class. A lot of younger guys out there for them. So it's just guys he's competing against of equal talent to him that have the same level of inexperience. And he's playing a position that requires way more mental fortitude. And again, the processing speed stuck out the most to me. I had seen, obviously, he can make reads. We've talked about that ad nauseum. But how quickly he was making full field reads was unreal. It was unbelievable his best throw of the game to me was one of his easiest, where he makes high read right, low read right, middle read, then comes left. And I'm forgetting now who even throws the ball to, but it's basically a guy wide open in the seam for a 15 or 20 yard Copeland, pass. Maybe. Yeah, and I break it down on the on the YouTube channel. But that was unbelievable. The amount and it was all correct. Covered, 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 boom. So fast. I mean, so fast. That was as good as Kyle Trask's processing speed, and Kyle Trask was much older than Richardson. So if you're wondering, hey, I don't evaluate quarterbacks, I don't know what to look for, how good do we think he was, I couldn't have imagined it going any better from a read standpoint, footwork standpoint, drive the football standpoint, throw into a window confidently, throw on time, feel where the receivers are. For a guy with such a big arm, Allen, he displays touch, he throws people open. He mm-hmm. throws to grass. He throws vertical routes, dig routes, slant routes. I mean, it was a almost every kind of throw. You're right of quarterbacking talent, which of course raises the question again: If he was unable to manage the game, if all the reports that were being put out there, he's not good enough. You're not seeing him practice yet. He can't handle it. Seemingly, all of a sudden, was running a wide open playbook. No penalties. Not a single false start. Not a cadence issue. Nothing. So again. Chalk up another box here, Alan, to the why it's hard as a fan to trust your coach if your coach is Dan Mullen. Because what is that? What were those reports? What was being said? So much so, there's a lot of Gator fans today, this week, maybe some of your friends that are still going to say this. Oh, but Alan, you threw two interceptions. Why are we even saying that? This is an unbelievable debut. I'm going to break down the interceptions for you in a second. But the fact that your friends might be saying that is because the coach of your program is wet blanketing. This guy's unbelievable, scored four times in a row, put the team on his back performance. What is that? Now, let's talk really quickly about the two picks. The first one, it's a very weird play, right? It's an RPO rollout go route. One run route option, fakes the handoff. The unblocked end, which is on purpose, the unblocked defensive end for LSU, reads the play, takes off right at Richardson, Richardson is winding up to throw the go route, which he has space to throw it. And as he starts to throw the ball, he gets grabbed. Now, that's wildly unfortunate. Here's what you look for with the pick. First, was the read correct? Yes, that was the right place to go with the football. Two, was there a place for the football? Yes, okay, check and check. Three, 
Were you getting pressure to a point to where you couldn't get the ball off? Yes. But it wasn't like a slam dunk. When he winds up, he feels like he probably has some time to get that off. Now, why perhaps does he not know he doesn't have that time? Because in practice, they're not hitting him. He's not exactly sure how fast these other elite athletes are closing on him because he doesn't have reps. Perhaps some Vanderbilt reps would have been good. But people saying that, oh my gosh, it was so foolish from the throw that was so bad. That's the exact play. He's supposed to run it. Florida designs a play where they're going to leave the unblocked end free to come through. LSU, who we said, Allen, was horrible on film all year long at covering a running quarterback, decided they were going to overly cover the running quarterbacks in this one. And they did. Their edge defenders were consistently out there, consistently solid. So bottom line to me is he should eat it, sure. Play call's pretty questionable. There was nothing to indicate LSU wasn't going to pressure his throw pretty quickly there. LSU's playing man defense. If they're in man defense, they're not going to leave that go route wide open, which they didn't. So I think that just to look at that and say, see, there you go. To me, that's not a bad interception. Right guy. There's a window to throw the ball. If he's a step further than the DN, that's either a completion or an incompletion. Not a risky pass. No danger there whatsoever. Unfortunately, gets grabbed. Now we see the pick. So that's one. Two. Yeah, definitely live looked way worse than when you when oh, you kind of look at back. Way worse when you look at it on a film, not the way it's it was. Like he's just chucking it up to yeah, the, which he which he wasn't, yeah. and that's true of the uh, that's true of the pick we talked about uh, before as well. As so far, he hasn't thrown, in my opinion, a truly bad pick minus the screenplay which we talked about. And here comes the second one. Now there's three minutes left in the game. It's second down. LSU we talked about coming into the podcast was able to get pressure against teams. It's one of the things their defense was capable of doing. And he throws what essentially was going to be an absolute throw-a-guy-open dime to Rick Wells down the sideline. Again, this is chronicled on the YouTube channel. You'll see it clearly. Unfortunately, Stuart Reese gets destroyed right off the line. Just gone. Absolutely faked out of his shorts. And then Kingsley's secondary loses his guy. So Richardson sets up for this throw. This is going to be a touchdown. It's going to be a touchdown, right? He sets up for the throw. He's under immediate pressure from three LSU players. You just have to eat it. Now, why isn't he eating it? Well, in his head, I can tell you why. He sees the space. He thinks, if I can get this ball off quick enough, it's a touchdown. He's not wrong. He's got a super strong arm, super strong guy. He's got Rick Wells against the linebacker. A linebacker, and the corner has stayed low on Naquan Wright, which is the check down. It's the exact look you want, but let me tell you something else, Alan. That's a high-level look. He's reading a flat-footed corner. He's got a linebacker matchup. He knows he has the out and up. He knows the safety's high and away. All of that is being processed as they're coming into his pocket. Again, that is, that's exceptional processing speed. And he's got to throw the ball to grass. Rick Wells is not open, but he knows he's going to be because of what route he's running. I love all of that. So proper guy to throw the ball to, proper identification. Again, the problem here is you're not going to have time to get that ball mm-hmm. off. You're just not going to have the time. But he's not being hit in practice. I'm going to keep saying that. He's not being hit in practice. So now all of a sudden you go to throw and you get hit. That throw doesn't go where you want it to go. You got to eat it. However, is that a bad pick? Well, yes. Technically, if you're Tom Brady, you eat that. If you're a young guy and your defense can't stop anyone and you know you got a touchdown throw here, and if you take a sack, it's going to be third down and 21, it becomes a little bit more muddy as to what you do. So I'm not an apologist for every pick Richardson throws like I wasn't for Trask, but the reality is good quarterbacks tend not to throw what you're going to consider like a really bad pick. They have logical reasons why they would do it. Yeah, and he him on that play, that's a hard one because this is what, when you talk about freshman mistake, there's different kinds. There's one where it's like 
Ah, uh, you know, you were, they fooled you with the scheme. Correct. And you haven't seen that yet, right? This is another kind of a freshman mistake where you got to think about game, like the spot of the game this is happening in. If you throw this pick, the game is over essentially. And but taking the sack is pretty bad too. So you're right. What is the thing to do there? Eat it there. And I, I love that you said Tom Brady. I said literally the same thing to somebody. Now, if you're Tom Brady, you know you have to just take the sack because you can't risk it there. But that's a lot happening right away. And he's a guy, you know, who has trusted his arm strength and his athletic ability. He's going to have to learn the nuances of that. And that's just a real thing. And that's where, as you said, some previous reps would have really, really helped. So I don't want to kill him on that play. Now, no. Again, no. we you could say we lost the game because of that, but... False. That the was game the was final a, play, yes. but it also shouldn't have been, yes. which we'll talk about because Florida has three timeouts and right. LSU is only going to run the ball. How about you get a stop? For you got sure. scored four times in a row. How about scoring five out of six times to win a game? That seems fair. No shot back. But I think here's the key. You've got this on your sheet here. So take home points. Phenomenal debut. Excellent footwork. Eyes always downfield. Never looks at the rush. Incredible full field awareness. Ability to throw the ball to all areas of the field. Accurate. Timely. That's unreal from a guy his age. We're talking, you know, right now, I think Oklahoma, rightfully so, right, has usurped him for the young, you know, kind of quarterback Caleb of the Williams, moment. Yeah. Caleb Williams is absolutely unreal right now. He's also with, no offense to Dan Mullen, the best quarterback coach in the land, which is Lincoln Riley. Dan Mullen, I think, is second to that if you're looking at track record. So it's going to be tough to stop that. But so, yeah, I think you saying that contextualizing, like there, there's not really – too many guys right now, just no. off this one half of football, that you would trade him straight. No, up that's what I'm. That's what I'm saying. Is I mean, I think if you look around all of college football right now, including Matt Corral, it's been sensational at Ole yeah, Miss. You know, maybe you would sensational. But if you're looking at ceiling talent on film, ceiling talent where he is right now, I mean, you can project all sorts of crazy fantasies because it's there. It's real. That's incredible. That's well, all. Well, yeah, there saying. is no ceiling. The ceiling is the roof, as they say. As they say. And so where could he improve? This is the big take home. There is, there is obviously an obvious thing for him to improve. And this is what you want a guy of his mold to have to improve on. He's Pat Mahomes. That's who he is. Missile for an arm. Super athletic guy. Smart. That's what Pat Mahomes was. Pat Mahomes had to learn when just to eat it. When you're such a sensational athlete... You can make things happen that Tom Brady cannot make happen, right? That Emory Jones cannot make happen, that Kyle Trask cannot make happen. What you don't want to do as a coach is take that away. Pat Mahomes had to learn how to balance it out. And very few people on the planet could tell Pat Mahomes when to take the risk and when not to. Because let's face it, Alan, a lot of his throws in the NFL are throws that a coach would say never make that throw. But that's what makes him special. He makes it consistently enough now that of course he should. And that's a feeling it out process that often sometimes requires the athlete themselves to figure that out. Dan Mullen can't remotely sniff what it's like to be richer than either can I or you or most people on the planet. So, of course, obvious situations. Hey, look, that's one you're going to have to eat. But as time goes on with Richardson, this is always where you want his improvement to come from. Learning that delicate balance between when to make a hero play and when to say, you know what? The odds have become too low for this particular play based upon everything that's happening. I need to live to make my hero play on the next one. And because I'm so talented, I can make a third and 20, right? But that, to me, is right where he should be. The mistakes he made, those are the right mistakes for a guy of his caliber. 
As a coach, I love it. I feel like that's what any coach would want to see. That's as good. Again, it's as good as it could be. Mistakes, throws, accuracy, look like all of it is logical, explainable, and solid. And something you feel like where he's just going to repeat this stuff and get better and better and better. Right. And he can, I would say he's going to have his ups and downs, right? Of if he continues to play, to. sure. He'll have different kinds of mistakes he'll make. I think yeah. you were great about chronicling this with Trask. Like he would make mistakes and then not repeat them. Now, he was at a level that he was processing this thing so fast and learning so fast. AR is probably on a different kind of trajectory, but I love what you said. There's there's no limit. You could dream up any kind of fantasy. Go for it right now. We don't know. And that's really fun. That's a really exciting to have that kind of player in your system. Where Could you say at the end of his college career, is he the best college football player of all time? I can't say no. Yeah, you could create ceiling narratives where that's true. Right. That's, now, that's, that's not the probability, but that's wild to have a guy like that. And so you have to do everything Right. If you notice that you have this gym, those guys, and again, he was a highly recruited guy, but he wasn't a number one recruit. He wasn't in the Caleb. He wasn't Caleb Williams. Yeah. Right. But if you realize that you have a guy who's even in that range, you have to basically in modern football turn everything in your attention to everything. maximizing that potential. Everything. And so I think Dan is capable of that. The problem is like, will he recognize it and be willing to lean into it? And will he celebrate him like these other wow. coaches celebrate? But this is important, Alan. Quarterbacking is confidence. Sure. Right? It's confidence. And look, you can you can talk to Danny Warfel about his relationship with Steve Spurrier. It was not easy at times. It was difficult. The constant yanking of no confidence, yanking quarterbacks in and out. That's a hard thing. Obviously, Danny and Steve get along great, but that's hard. And yeah, so and I don't know if Dan's level, ever going to change on that no and that's something to keep an eye on though and we're going to talk about the comments we'll save them everyone's seen them you know what ar said after the game and that's not an accident that to me as a player who loves florida grew up in gainesville wanted nothing more than to be a gator who is feeling the weight of his coach constantly leaning on him which is ridiculous so that takes a toll look if i'm a 17 year old quarterback and i look around and think hmm at the end of the tennessee old miss game i have lane kiffin talking about how much he loves having number two matt corral on his side down starters, hostile environment, loves the guy. No one else I'd rather have. You got Lincoln Riley, who had to you know talk nice about Spencer Rattler, which he is, also talking great about his young star, what he's doing well, while saying, of course, he's going to get better, right? Then you got Dan Mullen, who it's almost like he doesn't want to say anything good. And look, that carries a cost. That's the bottom line. It carries a cost. But on this side of things, Alan, you and I, I think, are totally unified. On film, on paper, there's no ceiling to Richardson. There's no weakness right now beyond the obvious inexperienced one. Of course, you're going to have that. But there's no weakness, arm strength, pocket presence, movement, throw left, throw right deep. Nothing that we've seen right. that and indicates there's, there's something he can't do. Guys don't realize their potential. And now that's the question. That's right. the fun part. Does yeah. he get to his ceiling? That'll be up to him, coaching, etc. We'll chronicle that. But nothing on film that indicates, hey, this guy's got this kind of weakness. He's going to have a really hard time overcoming. All right. So this is a little bit of tale of two QBs right here, if I can use that phrase. From the first half to the second half, almost looked like we were two different offensive schematic programs, right? What would you say is the biggest difference, obviously, just success rate in the offense when Emory is in under center, or he's not really under center, <laughs> when he's in the game versus when Richardson is in the game? I think the biggest difference is just that it, timing is everything in football. 
And if the ball comes out on time, your receivers look better. Your offense looks better. Also, if you play receiver and you play with a quarterback who you know will deliver the ball to you, you're just you're just dialed in. You're ready. We talked a lot about how Florida's receivers have been sensational because they're often like playing shortstop. They run their route and they're having to react to a hit ball towards them. Whereas now you're running a route and the ball's on you, on your route. It's way easier. So I, I just felt like the whole offense had a pep in their step. Diabate said this afterwards. Diabate, very smart. For those of you that don't know, potential road scholar. A lot of comments after the game. He talked about both Richardson and the defense, which we'll talk about. But on the Richardson part, he said, very diplomatically, but also correct. Oh, yeah, from the second this guy came on campus, the defenders looked around and said, this guy is going to be special. Special. Like, he was doing things that people don't do. And he's not talking about running the football. It's about throwing the football. I've mentioned before being at practices. I've mentioned before seeing Richardson the summer throw when we had our own football camp there. It's different. And so Diabate then, of course, said, and Emory Jones is great too. We trust him too, right? So this is this is not a surprise. The players themselves know that the game is different because there's different things Richardson can do. And you know what builds confidence even more than that? Then practice is in the game. Now all of a sudden in a game, when it matters, you're out there catching post routes. You're catching go routes. You're, you're working on the other team and you get the pep in your step. You get the belief, right? Everything dials in. So I thought that's what you saw. I think you saw hesitation on the offense when Emory's in because it has to be hesitating. Things are not on time. The mechanics aren't right. It's like a gear that's not always right. And then when the gears were all right, it was firing. And that's that's the role of a quarterback. The role of a quarterback is to get those gears firing together all the time. Well, let me see if you agree with my statement here. The playbook seemed more open and more creative with Richardson. And not in a way you gotta you gotta call some goofy stuff for him. Now we called some like rocker step stuff, some really creative play design from Dan Mullen. But it seemed like they could do more things, not less. And that's what you would be afraid of. Okay, I'm putting my freshman quarterback who is got a big ceiling, but I can only call half the plays, or he doesn't if I called this, would he do the right thing? It feels like we were more aggressive attempting different kinds of things, which completely inverts the narrative that Mullen was giving and not to like continue to crash on those comments. But so was it just that we were, let me see if I ask this question. Were we being more creative and more of the playbook was open or we just were being more effective, hitting more parts of each play that was designed? There's no doubt. And we've said this before. We run different route combinations when Richardson's in. And that's one of the first signs that you can tell that Dan Mullen himself has known all season long who can throw a better ball. Clearly, Emory Jones is almost always digs and hitches and then decoy routes. With Richardson, they were all live. They were all live routes. We all of a sudden went back to what we saw with Trask. We're two on one vertically. We're running rub routes. We're running, we're running much more quarterback friendly routes, but that requires timing, precision, accuracy. And I'm sure that if Dan Mullen were on this podcast, what he would say to defend himself would be, well, listen, listen, James and Allen, they were going to play cover one man the whole game. That's really easy. There's no reading required from Richardson, which is right and wrong, right? It's it's kind of a nice way to say there's no zone he has to read. There's no pre-snap, post-snap difference. Richardson took the ball and knew he was going to look at his matchups and go across the board. But most inexperienced quarterbacks, Allen, pre-snap say, okay, I've got man-to-man and one safety. I like Copeland. I'm going to take the ball back and stare at Copeland. Right. But Richardson wasn't doing that. He would take a look at receiver one. Okay, he didn't win his route. Receiver two didn't win his route. Receiver three, oh, he's open. Boom, ball's out. So even if you're playing against man, to process that quickly, not open, not open, open. 
is what we're talking about. So there's a benefit of the fact that LSU was so vanilla on their back end because they wanted to stop our run. And secondarily, of course, we did run different routes for sure with Richardson in the game. And because he could see the entire field, I think even Dan Mullen began to feel. I can call some more stuff here. As Dan would say, he's hot right now. Mm -hmm. I'm going to give him some more things to call. And to be fair to Dan, he called some excellent plays. And then I also felt like as the game went on, Allen, he got a little tighter. First and second down, we go back to kind of obvious QB runs or handoffs. LSU never changed. They were content to stay cover one man and just make Florida throw. And Richardson did that all the way until he got pressured with the pick there at the end. It was awesome to watch really the schematic advantages Dan brings and the tactical moments. I mean, there was some beautiful, some stuff that we haven't seen all year, or maybe we've seen it and Emory's just going away from the best kind of action. So I can't say I haven't. No, I don't think, I think there was yeah. stuff we haven't seen before. I can't for sure. see fully, but there were some really beautiful plays. And sometimes just a normal kind of play, there's no like flair to it, but it looks great because of what Richardson's doing. And then also times where Richardson, you know, it's a design QB run left and he breaks it off and gets picked up 20 something yards right to the right, which is he can do because he's better than you. And excellent vision. Again, yes. this is a guy who's he sees the field as a runner and a passer. Okay. We'll continue talking about Richardson as we go, I'm sure. Um, so the O-line did not have their best day. Richard Garage, in particular, got beat a bunch by B.J. Ojolari. The guy we highlighted having the yeah. most pressures in the SEC, and there, there's a reason why. And I don't like to make excuses for guy, but we hadn't seen – for guys, but we hadn't seen anything like this from Garage. He didn't play last week. I I would not be surprised if he wasn't 100%. You know, not that he can't have a bad game or have trouble with a specific guy because that comes up all the time matchup-wise. Like, some guys are worse than others for you. But he did not look great. The run game was mediocre, right? So we were not Putting disastrous, right? Well, yeah. you know, yeah. picking up some yardage, but it wasn't the engine of our offense moving forward, right? Previously, we've been able to run into bad looks. We've been able to run when we wanted to. We were not able to do that. So was was that the result of us being just ineffective at what we were doing or LSU's stoutness or their what they were attempting to do to stop us? LSU died on the hill of stopping the quarterback run, which, by the way, I prefer. I think that's the right way to play defense against a team like Florida is just make them have to run it between the tackles. Now, Florida had been able to do this with a lot of right, success. Exactly. Other teams have tried this, but right. LSU was extra committed to it, which I think surprised Florida staff because we ourselves highlighted coming into the LSU game that they were horrific at allowing quarterbacks to keep the ball on zone reads. Kentucky shredded them. Everybody shredded them that ran any kind of zone read concept with the quarterback. Whatever happened that week in practice, they got that junk right. So some credit to LSU for saying we are going to make sure we stay on the outside. And also, look, when you play Florida, everyone knows it this year. You just minimal amount of pass defenders, max in the box. They always had seven players in the box. And unlike Kentucky, who run a a cleaner defense when it comes to zoning, LSU just played all man. They made it simple, which I think was smart because LSU was blowing coverages left and right. They're also not a man. down their best defenders. Correct. Asking those so they're all gone. So yeah. let's make it simple, which is smart. I'm going to give credit to where credit should be due. It takes a, it takes some wisdom just to say, listen, I'm not going to try to put in some different zones in here and put my guys in conflict. I'm just going to say you cover that guy. 
and hopefully to get a stop. So they did that. They loaded up the numbers, but Florida also ran against the numbers many, many times in this game because we had had success. Really not against Kentucky. We didn't, by the way, but we had success against other people. And I think they thought LSU is terrible stopping the run, which they were. Which was not a bad assumption on that No, part. not a bad assumption, but it was evident earlier in the game that that was not working. Yes. And I think it took Florida a while. Really, they tried it then with Emory and stuff went wrong, obviously. And then Richardson came in. And I think that's part of the reason why Richardson came in is they knew this was not a game where we were going to get to keep running the football. We have to throw the football and clearly put your better thrower in. But I think the real reason... That tells a story here, Alan. It's quite simple. It's one player that made the difference on film significantly. And that's number 77, Ethan White. We lost him after the third series. Florida was actually fine running the football until then. In fact, they had not converted to third and short and some other things. But they were fine. They were competent. And then the wheels fell off. Essentially, without Ethan White, who we have highlighted as an absolutely phenomenally quick and big and strong guard, who can pull all the way across the formation, who can block straight line running power. There's nothing he can't do. And he was shredding LSU. He goes out and Braun comes in. And Braun, who I thought has been fine, right? He, I think he's, he's been fine. He's not played on the left side as much. he's not played on the left side as much. And the left side's more demanding. He got owned. There's no other way. He was just completely owned. He, he rarely ever got any forward push in the run game. He, they weren't using him to pull across the formation at all. We just could not get that going pretty much all game long. And he was fine in pass protection, Braun was, but he just, I don't think he was comfortable running our rushing offense from that side. And we talked about the thinness of our O-line, kind of who plays where and what happens. And I think that came back to bite our running game more than anything else. Is Ethan White, that hurt. It's likely Garage was hurt because Garage has been has been solid against even other top SEC pass rushers. And he just got, he got exposed in this particular game. So if Garage is hurt and there's no White, you reach a scenario you had talked about in the preseason where there's going to be a steep drop-off as to how well you can run block. And now you're trying to do that against an advantaged front where you're down a man. If they play discipline and they get in the gaps, there's not a lot the offense can do. And that was true. And that's why I think the running game struggled. I, yes, I. it's multifaceted there. One, I would have liked to have seen what we would have done had we not basically not had any possessions in the first half, it was weird, right? So we throw those picks on back-to-back plays. We have the drive where we're basically only allowed to throw the ball because it's we have 30 seconds left. Um, what we would have done differently, right? Now we come in, we bring in Richardson, and we're able to throw the ball. So, yeah, you want to stack the box, that's fine. You want to play man, that's fine. We're going to eat you up, essentially. So... Yeah, would have been just a slog the entire game. Would we have adjusted? Interesting kind of counterfactual there. But yeah, they were not wanting us to do it, and they were more effective at it than I thought they'd be. I still expect them to kind of do what they did schematically. They were just better. They had a defensive lineman who returned in this game, his first action back. But I was very surprised at how effective they were and how ineffective we were given the circumstances. Yeah, so. good good point. No surprises schematically from LSU. Yeah. That's the right thing to say. Not a single thing they did was surprising from a schematic standpoint. It was surprising they executed the plan well in their front seven. But that is exactly what Florida would have expected them to do. Okay. Um, just a few things that maybe stood out in film that we haven't mentioned yet. You mentioned this, but I want to come back and just highlight again. Emory coming in in that moment, third and long, and hitting a throw that he normally doesn't hit very effectively. 
And that was a big spot. He was still engaged in the game. So you've got to give credit to him for coming in a difficult spot and picking up the first down. Again, Dan Mullen bought him. Richardson was definitely the right call. But that's not an easy thing to do when you've been benched to come back in and not just like hand the ball off, but to pick up a big play. So I thought that was a real credit to him. Phenomenal. Again, you want to celebrate these things as much as we've had to talk about Emery and limitations, which is which is frustrating because you don't want to sit here and talk about a guy's limitations in the football field, right? It's not fun for anyone, uh, but it is what it is. That's how you get better in life, your craft, etc. But that's a moment you really feel great for Emory Jones. He's been nothing but exemplary. He's always said the right things. A positive guy. That's a great moment for him. It's a pressure moment. It was smart. It was a smart play call. It's one of his favorite play calls to run. Florida runs that often. It's a hitch and a dig, and it's basically like a hitch. Right. So he's throwing a dig, but it, but they really run it like a body throw hitch, and he's good at that throw. We right. ran it earlier in that game. He completed it. It's he one doesn't of his always. Favorite. He doesn't always complete it. So that's he doesn't. He's doing that but moment. it's one of his favorite throws, and either it's a little behind him, which it has been sometimes, or it's there. But it was a good play call and a comfortable zone for him. But regardless, you come off the bench, you have not thrown a football, you're watching basically your competition take the mantle of your job, which you fought your whole life for. And now it's easy to be like, I'm not in this mentally. He converts. We score a touchdown on that drive. That should be celebrated. That's what you want your team to do. That's, that's the old school definition of team. Support your teammates. Do your job. Even if it's not going super well for you personally, when your number is called, support your team. So great job there from memory. All right, so anything else just on film or players' performances that stood out that we haven't gotten to yet? I think two other takeaways where the play calling was less than ideal, even with Richardson there at the end. You know, multiple times we had to face third down in, in a decently long scenario. We're running on first and second down, and LSU was still as hard-headed as possible staying cover one man, and we were killing them in that. I thought that was surprising. Um, you know, AR got us out of it really every single time. I thought we got a little conservative in those moments. We've seen Dan do that before. I'm not going to kill him for that. He's a human. Uh, But really, the main takeaway for me is this. A lot of people are going to say Florida threw four INTs. That's why we lost. Coaches love to talk about turnovers or why we lost. And sometimes that's totally true. That's not true in this game. That's not true, Alan. It's just totally false. If you score four touchdowns in a row and you're playing an LSU team that's undermanned, that can't run the football against anybody, that was basically dead last in rushing, you're you're neutralizing their passing game, all you have to do is get two stops, three stops, and it's an easy win, right? So I don't think that's true, especially when you look at the fact that the last INT came on the last drive. So, so it's I wouldn't want to say that if that's you don't throw the interceptions, you're more likely to win, even if sure, you have a terrible... Sure, but that's not... That might be true if the score was 10-7. Right. But when it's 49-42, and again, momentum is everything in sports. When early on in the second half, right, Richardson starts rolling and scoring. Typically in those moments, the defense gets a pick-me-up. You got new energy. It's what happens with Oklahoma, Texas. Oklahoma blows them out. They win a close game, but they blow them out from the timeline when Caleb Williams started playing. Just crushed them. And Florida didn't get that. So I'm going to say, yes, that affects things. But to me, this game is going to get hung on the defense. When the moment occurred and the game was within one score and all the defense had to do was bow up and get a few stops against an undermanned LSU team, they couldn't answer the call. And they couldn't answer the call to give the quarterback the ball back after he made a mistake either. So I'm I'm not going to hang this game on four INTs, but I'm also not going to say it didn't matter. It did. 
But I don't think that was the full story of why Florida lost this game. The offense was good enough to win, especially once Richardson obviously started playing against this particular LSU team. Okay, changes we'd like to see. I, it's, this is hard to contextualize this because this is going to be such a different thing moving forward. Obviously, you'd like to see the guys healthy and you'd like to see Richardson be the starter. Solidified. Named it. This is our guy. I'm riding okay. with 15. And I'd like to see Emery transfer to a great place. I mean, this is this is the nice thing. Let's talk about the positive thing about the transfer portal for a second. Emery can now choose, get his degree, finish up at Florida, support you know Richardson. Or thanks to the transfer portal, he's worked really hard. He can go to a level of competition that will more suit where he's at and play football. And that's awesome. He could totally be a starting quarterback somewhere. Oh, he should be. I fully support that. I just, like we said, he's not a starting quarterback at the level of a good SEC team or a good power five team, but he is at other levels. He can, he can be useful there and he should, he should go do that. Have fun, finish your time, apply your craft. There's nothing wrong with that, by the way. That's not a bad outcome for him. He gets all the investing of Florida. He has a nice time. He plays well. He, 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 that's fine. So I'd like to see that happen. I would not like to see the ongoing weekly, we're going to evaluate it. We're going to play, quote, the hot hand. That is not what I want to see. That's yet another signal to your team that you are not as the head coach invested in doing what's best for your team to get to the ceiling, but instead you'd rather play a guy who has seniority or has been in the program for a long time. And look, that's just the wrong message, period. It's the wrong message to a championship caliber team that if you're here for four years, you get to play. It's a nice message. It feels good. I want life to look like that. But that is not what life looks like when you're trying to win something. The best guys have to play. So I 100% agree with that. I Even if Dan was, we never had any quibbles about him ultimately picking the right guy. I think most coaches of his temperament would not give you any information. Even if starting tomorrow, Richardson is taking all the first team reps. And it's clear to the team who's going to start him that he would not say that publicly. Just on the 1% chance that. Georgia is like, oh, we got to prepare for both quarterbacks. So I doubt you'll see that proclamation, even if functionally Richard is is installed internally as a sure. starter. Well, let's go with that. That's what we're saying, right? Actions speak loud in the words. Purposefully being, that's the guy you start to go with. And maybe one day we hear out of his mouth or we hear out of Lane Kiffin's mouth is after a game, man, I'm really happy 15's on this team. I would take that. That'd make me feel good. I don't think Trask ever really got that. You know, we chronicle that each week. I'd love to see just a nice... Don't focus on the mistakes for a second. Love this guy being our quarterback. That'd be great. It would be. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
What would also be great is a defense that doesn't give up a record day rushing the ball. So I think people will remember a lot from this game. And that's crazy. These LSU games are wild, right? I told the story of last year's game. If you just run through the fog bank, the 57-yard field goal, the thrown shoe, this game might have been even weirder. And I don't know how that's possible. But here we go. 450 yards total offense there, I think, that UF gave up. 321 yards rushing. 5 of 12 on third down. 3 for 3 in the red zone. Only one sack did they record. Okay. Tyrion Davis-Price, fairly anonymous LSU running back until this moment. 36 carries, which is a lot. Oh, that's a lot. That's a lot. But... 287 yards, three TDs, whatever, eight yards per carry. So he broke a couple records here. He broke, I think, Leonard Fournette's record for most rushing yards by a running back. They've had a lot of great running backs, and he is not one of them. At least not, not that we thought. Not that we thought. Maybe he was a four-star. Nice guy. But I think, you know, if you, if you look at the scouting report on him, he's a downhill runner. He's strong. Think about the Doesn't guys they Doesn't break a lot of league. tackles. I mean, he's not. He's, he's a great athlete. He's I don't fine. want to minimize him. Sure. But he, he's not a guy you're looking at thinking, this is a top-level NFL running back. Well, not an all-time. Not even close. Not with skill set. But that's what he just did against Florida. And the most ever for yards against Florida, which... Which beat out a guy maybe you heard of. Herschel Walker. I was trying to contextualize who Herschel Walker was for somebody who didn't know who it was. Basically, if you invented a running back in like a video game and gave him like all of the perfect stats and then ran him and like I used him as a battering ram a million times a game. Herschel Walker, Bo Jackson, these guys who are just physical freaks, right? You You make them up in the lab kind of a guy. So he broke Herschel Walker's record. So all right, I'm going to just jump in here. The only real discussion I have, and this is the most obvious thing, everybody, right? So sometimes we come in and we kind of go, let's uncover what happened, right? But the announcers who are often clueless, every fan out there, every person in the media, they are running the same dang play, seemingly, right? Now there's some variations, but... Why couldn't we stop the same play or the same concept? And did we make any adjustments at all to combat it schematically? Well, this is loaded again. The YouTube film, it shows you everything you want to see visually. So now we'll describe it. The play that LSU was running, there's a nice story behind it, uh, is an old play that really goes back to the Washington Redskins. Right. This is not a newfangled thing. Not a new play. Not a new play. It goes back 40 years, but was dormant for a long time until one Lincoln Riley brought it back into college football in 2015 at Oklahoma, which means Florida saw this play last year when they played Oklahoma and Oklahoma was very successful running it. And here's something you should know. Oklahoma didn't run a lot of these counter plays last year, but they chose to run them against Florida. Why did they not run a lot of counter plays? Because the big 12 have seen so many of their counter plays. They'd gotten decent at stopping them for a while though. Oklahoma was wrecking people with these counter plays. They wrecked Florida with it. So let's bring that up to what happened in Florida LSU. We mentioned how LSU has an NFL coordinator. NFL coordinators, one of the reasons that makes them smart is if they find a play that works, they don't stop running it. 
A lot of college coordinators will start scripting stuff or changing stuff because they just do it. Oh, no, 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 not here, especially not if it's a running game play. So they're running what's essentially called the GT counterplay or the guard tackle counter. Now, LSU, as you mentioned, runs variations of it. But as you saw, they frequently had number 82 playing H-back for them. He's a tight end. He's playing H-back, so he's a little bit behind the line of scrimmage. And then on this particular play, the counter play, hence a counter because you're going in the opposite direction of the way it plays looks. You take one step to the right, and then you're going to go left or vice versa. And Florida not only could not stop this play or any variation of it, for the entire game, LSU felt so comfortable in the third and fourth quarter that they ran the ball 21 of their last 23 times. And Florida on film, Allen, never makes a schematic change. They occasionally will run some slightly different fronts. They will occasionally change their personnel. But Florida State, in something you and I have chronicled for so long, their base nickel defense, because that's what Grantham does pretty much all the time. It's like a Swiss Army knife for everything. But more importantly than that, they also stayed so stubbornly with their too high shell mm-hmm. having trading come down. Trading was awful. I don't want to blame trading on this because I don't think trading's ever been coached how to stop a counterplay in his life. If you look on film, he's not anywhere near the right gap. He seemingly has no idea what he's doing. And he's LSU is blown up just every time. having his way with him. The only player mm-hmm. who seemed to know what was going on consistently was Hopper. And Hopper's playing out the steps. He was absolutely gassed. And then Diabate, who's fine. Diabate just doesn't, he doesn't shed blocks quite as well. He doesn't quite get down into the hole. Moon was often totally clueless, which makes sense. He doesn't play inside linebacker. But with all those things being said, here's what Florida should have done without getting into the complexities of the play from the start. So one, as a defense, you say, okay, let's see if we can stop them like Kentucky did down numbers in the box. Kentucky was able to stop LSU's counterplay six versus eight. So they'd stayed in their two-eye shell, which we've chronicled. Mark Stoops loves to do that. And they stopped them six versus eight for two main reasons. One, they had excellent gap discipline. Two, their defensive linemen did not play like idiots. I don't know how else to say it, Alan. We've given David Turner so much praise. Florida's defensive line acted like every single play was a pass play. And they were flying up the field, which is exactly what you don't want to do against a counter. That's the worst thing you can possibly do because you're going to need to be able to stop the run. That hurt. Secondarily, Kentucky's linebackers did something apparently no one has taught Florida's linebackers to ever do. Now, we've talked about Christian Robinson. We've talked about how it seems that there's little to no coaching going on with linebackers. Diabate's comments after the game seem to indicate there's little to no coaching going on with linebackers. But when there's an H-back on the field, which Florida will employ frequently as Gamble or Zipper, but the H-back, number 82, in football, where the H-back goes post-snap, Allen, is where the ball almost always goes. Why? Because he's your lead blocker. He's like an old-school fullback. So if you're a linebacker, what you're supposed to do when the ball is snapped is begin to mirror the H-back while maintaining what your gap responsibility is. Again, the gaps we talked about A, B, and C, moving from the center to the edge of the tackles. Florida, especially Trey Dean, they're almost never looking at the H-back. So on this counter play, here goes the H-back. He's going to be the first over to the counter. Then you have the guard and the tackle that are going to pull across the formation. They're basically going to kick out the defensive end and then get a block on a linebacker. Well, this works really well when you have linebackers going to the wrong place. When you have guys getting blocked by maybe one one lineman for LSU at frequent times is taking out three Florida players. Then you have a safety in Trey Dean 
who has no idea where he's going, and he's often the unblocked man who's supposed to make the stop, and he's also starting 8 to 10 yards off the line of scrimmage. And you would think after seeing this play 21 times that you would say, you know what? We didn't coach this right. It's not working. Let's take Trey Dean off the field because they're not passing well on us, and let's put another linebacker on the field, and let's go with three linebackers, or let's run a five-man front. So we have a bigger, stronger front up top, which anyone else would have done, and then go with two linebackers behind them and just play cover one man behind it. There's a million things you could do here, Alan. This is what, but you have to put more people in the box. Number one, Florida didn't do it. Number two, Florida frequently did this. They'd put all four linebackers in, and we would have one or maybe two actual defensive linemen in when they're running a counter play. So you've got little guys in there, like Bernie, who's lined up against the center and the guard, and they're obliterating him. And they're just running whatever they want. And it's unbelievable. I mean, they were running, again, to end this up, Alan, the GT counter is a great football play. It reminds me of Vince Lombardi, who often said that he had the Packers sweep. It was the Lombardi sweep. It was one play that he ran. They ran it like 50% of the time, and no one could stop it, right? In modern football, people know how to stop these basic running plays. This was like a high school team that found a play that the opposing team had never practiced against and didn't know what to do, and they just kept running it. You do not see this stuff in major college football at that level. It was embarrassing. It's disgusting. It's inexcusable. It's ridiculous. And Florida looked like a bunch of amateurs out there. It was beyond anything that I could describe to you in ways that made sense. Totally inexcusable. All right. I love, I just wanted to tee you up to say all that. It's really crazy, right? There's some stuff that, like you said, there's basic stuff. I think we talked about Tennessee last year, maybe the year before they would run a similar thing. You're like watch number. I think it was 82. They're tied in their H back. They just run behind him all the time, right? Now you can get in trouble if you just do that all the time. And then the offense goes, we're going to run this guy over here. And then we're going to do something else and fool you, right? That's not what was happening. It's almost like they were afraid that LSU was going to throw the ball. So afraid, which I don't know why they're unwilling to deviate. I was trying to pick up any kind of real tactical adjustments and we, we didn't do anything, nothing dramatic. What you cannot do, what you can never do is let them run the same play on you over and over and over again. You must, whatever you have to do, run a goal line stand. Sure. You cannot yeah, allow them to do it. You can't. You can't. And it was almost like we're scoring every time, so let's just hope that eventually they'll get tired of running sure. the same play. I don't know. It It's inconceivable to, to me. I'm not a professional defensive coordinator. I could come up with four different things that I would have tried. Like you said, different defensive line personnel. They did not look good. They did not know what they were doing. Change the front. Do an even front. Do an odd front. Whatever you're not doing, do something do different. That. Put more linebackers on the field. I've asked this question a hundred times in the Grantham era. You, it's not legally required for you to play a nickel. No, I don't know not. if you know that. I don't think he does. We we begged on the podcast, outright begged, please, please. And I don't know if he would have made a difference. The nickel. But this was it the, would have made a difference. Well, and I'm saying no, but, but I'm about to say, I have not felt like we've missed Ventrell Miller. I would have liked to have had him available in this game. I don't know if it would have changed the outcome of the game, but that's the kind of guy theoretically even, and he's not even that big a linebacker. Right, we don't employ a lot of very big linebackers. Tyron Hopper, who I love, is not the biggest guy. No, he's not big. That's what hurts him. Mm-hmm. Do you, 
literally anything else. Yeah, Miller and Hopper would have stopped it together because they both flow well. They scrape. So scraping is when this is important. Florida scrapes horribly. So if you're if you're not on the play side, the play side is where the ball is going. All right, so you have two linebackers. We'll keep this really simple. And Alan, you're on the play side, so the play is coming right at you. Right, they're going to try to block you first. Me, I'm the other side linebacker. I could be the weak side linebacker, the strong side. Doesn't matter. I'm not the play side. I need to scrape across is what it's called, right? I'm scraping across your television screen to get into the gap to make the tackle. If I'm good at scraping, I scrape before a lineman can block me because oftentimes a lineman is going to double team the nose tackle, Gervin Dexter, and then block you. So good linebackers, you know, obviously Hopper or Kentucky's linebackers or any competent ones, um, Miller, get there first. They read the H-back, they scrape across the formation, and they fill the hole. Well, we wanted Trey Dean to do that stuff. Again, Trey Dean doesn't know where he's going. And Moon doesn't know where he's going. And Diabate is slow to go where he wants to go. It's not his thing. He's an edge pass rushing outside linebacker. That's not what those guys do. And so, like you mentioned, that's just, that's that's high school linebacking. That's like base level linebacker. And you look at it and think. And if your linebackers aren't, ca- aren't capable, and again, we don't have a ton of depth there. We got a lot of smaller guys. We don't Which have the big thumpers. We can't get off blocks. Right. Put five defensive tackles in the yes, game. Yes, that's what you do. You go heavy with your defensive line, which, by the way, is freaking loaded. Right. That's what you do. And that is what you do. Take a safety off the, the field. Take yes. your nickel off the field. Correct. Hey, guess what? Kyrie Elam and Abraham, you got to play straight up man yeah. because we got to put literally everybody else in the box. Yeah, which is great. Put Elam and Marshall, who are your two best cover corners at this point in time, against whatever guys are putting out there because they were blanketed. Good. Live with it. Stop the run. Didn't try it. Also, Alan, we didn't try even basic things. So like you can slant your D-line. So for example, if I know that you're trying to run a counter all the time, here's some fun facts for you. Mm-hmm. You yes. can only run the counter to the opposite side of the H-back. You're not, you can't, basically the way it works is you're not going to run a counter at your H-back. You run a power run, which is less devastating to Florida for obvious reasons that what we cover on the film review. But point for this is that you could have your D-line then say, you know what, as soon as a ball snapped, you're going to basically slant into the gap the counter could be running. So you're going to take a chance. This could be bad because you can get what's called getting washed out on your block where you slant in and you get, you're out of the gap. But you can it also can be really good you, because you basically beat them to their whole blocking scheme. And LSU is not a good enough team where they're going to punish you routinely if you guess the gap wrong because they're not that kind of team. Florida didn't even try that. There's also things like squeezing and spilling you can do where basically you have your DN crash flat across the line. And you can also, you know, spilling is where you exchange. We talked about this Alabama. They spill a lot where basically the DN crashes and the linebacker fills. It's a way they can. We, we did nothing. We didn't try a thing. It was like the same thing. And here comes Trey Dean and whammo. I mean, it was it was ludicrous. I, I mean, if you play Madden and you're 12 years old, you get frustrated. People are running the ball on you. The first thing you do is you switch like the bare front. You don't know what it means, but you see there's a lot of guys up front. And then you get really mad and you switch to goal line, right? I would have been happier if we played goal line defense at some point in time. Do something. That's what was crazy is not that we adjusted and they caught us. They, you know, game theory kept leveling up on us. It's like we never, they never got out of level one because we never got out of level one. Sure did. I, I, I'm sure there were some things that were said and some Coaches that were trying to coach up. It's not like they 
All of these coaches have, did seen, nothing, have right? seen a counterplay a gazillion times. Yes, in their I have too. Everyone. This is not like, whoa, what is this newfangled play they're running? So I don't know. We, we could continue just to yell about this forever. But the point good. is, the takeaway is that they didn't do anything. I, not discernible to the naked eye. Uh, maybe the, whatever subtleties were going on wasn't enough. It's not on film, like we said. You can closely watch, you know, and you can know. You know, this is what a counterplay is relying on happening, and here's how you would stop it. And you're right. looking on the film. Did they try this? Did they try this? Did they try this? And you're looking, and you're seeing no, no, no. And you're coupling that, like we mentioned, with traditional bad stuff from Florida, bad gap fills, which has been a hallmark of Grantham's defense since he's been here, right? So you couple all that stuff together, now you're in trouble, and you're relying on hero plays. Well, yeah, and it's not like LSU came into the game and be like, we're going to run the— no simple counterplay a million times. That's what it's like. They ran. It was like, oh, they didn't stop that. Run it again. Well, yeah. they're still not stopping it. They're still not adjusting it. I guess we'll keep running it. Right. And I think it is not wrong when you watch the Kentucky film. The game was over, but it's not wrong to say that at the end of the game they started running the GT counter, and they found success with it against Kentucky, who also likes to run a too high shell. Again, much better linebackers. But Kentucky was playing backup defenders. The but they also didn't care. And it didn't there, matter. There's no reason to adjust because it didn't matter. So what I'm saying is that looks nice on film against Kentucky when they're not caring and the game is over and they're letting you run a clock out. It looked even nicer against Florida in a game that meant seemingly a lot for Dan Mullen. We talked about it being a huge crossroads for him. He couldn't lose this game. So, yeah, I mean, it's head-scratching beyond belief. Brandon Spikes himself came out on Twitter. A lot of Florida players did. Yes. We're basically saying not positive things about what they had learned or not learned under Grantham. Uh, but I think it all comes down to this for me, Alan. We've covered Grantham's tenure here exhaustively. We've covered everything about it. And at the end of the day, something that, that we said I think rings so true. Football has just simply passed Grantham by. The stuff that worked for Grantham, it never worked at a high level anyway. If you look at his numbers in the SEC, his best stint was in Louisville. That defense was already improving. We had our buddy JT Raymond go back and dig way deep in all the numbers. But football changed with Urban Meyer significantly and Chip Kelly. And now it's it's so different. Like 25 years ago, Alan, football to today is so, so different, despite the fact there's a lot of recycled components. And Grantham is just not on that level. He doesn't get it. And so even when we're running a base play, he's so afraid of seemingly an RPO that he's just giving this team touchdown after touchdown after touchdown. I was like, what are you afraid of at this point? Stop the easiest play first. But we've seen this stuff before. That's the thing, right? This is not a new thing. It's just a different way for Florida to lose on defense well, in a game that mattered. It's a philosophical, interestingly, it's interesting philosophically because we talked about well, you mentioned it casually here that why do you why do you run that nickel? Because it is kind of a Swiss Army knife. Theoretically, it should be able to stop everything. So you whether they pass or run, we should be able to stop it, right? We're not we're not heavy, we're not gambling heavily in any area. We should be able to do everything at a reasonable level. We're not playing crazy dime, we're we're you know dropping eight and you're running the ball. We're not Loading up into the box now, we're easy to pass against. But if that's not working, working, you have to be able to shift out of it anyway. Yeah, they never got to coach, and you got to coach your players adjusted. better. Because here's the reality: it can work, right? Like, sure, schematically, stopping the G, the you can stop a GT counterplay. You can stop all sorts of there's all sorts of fun names. I'm, I'm mentioning the guard tackle counterplay because that's the base play you run out of. But you can stop all of them out of the nickel if your players are good and they know what they're doing, and especially if you have a strong safety who's an excellent run stopper. 
which Trey Dean has never been. He's not good at that. He gets run over in the hole. We chronicled him on YouTube all this year. He kind of waits. He's passive. He's not sure. I'm not trying to dog Trey Dean. That's a hard position to play. That is that is a specialist position. He's just not good at it. And I also happen to wonder what kind of coaching he's getting and how to do that. Because again, he's just, watch the film for yourself. He's just running around out there. And that is not going to work when you're counting on him in that nickel scheme, Allen, he's the guy. He's the unblocked guy that is supposed to be making a bunch of tackles. So we've gone this far without saying one thing. What happened to Florida's defense that really killed Florida's defense? We lost Torrance. Yes. That killed Florida's defense. He has been cleaning up all of these plays as your free safety, which is highly unusual, by the way. But that's how good Torrance was. He goes down. Trevez Johnson goes back there, and he might as well have just sat on the sideline. Because he was completely out of place, out of position, couldn't tackle, non-factor, gone. That's what they put back there at safety. And he doesn't he hasn't been back there. He was a safety in high school, whatever. So you lose him. Now you have Dean. I mean, it was it was it was bad. So perhaps with Torrance there, he's gonna save some of those plays. They're not gonna be touchdowns. But again, totally befuddled with the fact yeah, that Ford did not try a bunch of other things. That's crazy. So I'm glad you mentioned Torrance going out early really, really killed us and it shouldn't. I mean, of course, losing one of your best players should affect you, but not in the ways that it did, question mark. And also, hey, coaching staff, I know you're not con- – You're. I just want to let you know, but you didn't know this. You're not contractually obligated to play the nickel. You're also not con- contractually obligated to play Travis Johnson, whose finger marks were all over every big passing play too, seemingly. Oh, everywhere. So, okay, LSU converted a lot of – like more third downs than I wanted to, some of them long ones. Well, especially critical ones in the second right. half. They really converted almost all of them in the second half, minus one. And that, I think, is why it feels like they converted more than they did. Yes. And, right, because we stopped them actually a decent amount in the first half. We did, yeah. Again, Torrance going out was significant to what went down. And we dodged a few bullets in the first the first half drives. And so, on one hand, though, I wasn't satisfied with the pressure the defensive line was getting. Was getting. There was a third and long they converted in the first half, which... Seemed like kind of old school last year's Grantham was like, hey, third and 13 is actually your best play. Classic. We dropped eight, left the guy wide open. Right. Zone coverage is terrible. Something we've talked about a lot. Mm-hmm. Which we've been better it at. It looks better year. until that play. Until that play. And then they honestly didn't have to complete too many third and longs because they were running the ball with such huge efficiency. They were even running on third down some. Oh, third and five. Oh, the second half was like third and five. Sure, we're going to run for that. No problem. So just want to note that that was bad. A lot the D line who we've praised a ton got exposed, and there's some things they don't do well. And we found out what they were in this game. Yeah, now that's that's the that's the question that you have, right? Again, is like it's one thing if you're thinking as a defensive lineman, you know, LSU threw the ball a lot early on. Their game plan was to throw on Florida because they felt like rightfully so they probably couldn't run well on Florida's defensive line. That was their thought. Well, they hadn't run well on anybody because they haven't. Thank you. On anyone. So now how are you going to run on Florida's rush defense? It's good. And wisely, they kind of kept dabbling with it. And like, oh, this is actually working pretty well. But, uh, you know, I think I think another thing there, which is what we're kind of coming to here, is like if you, if you look at, if you just look at what Florida did in the first half, they were solid against the pass. And then the second half, the wheels fall off running. And you think, okay, they're, they're running and they're running and they're running and they're running. Let's put, again, more defensive linemen on the field. And also, let's tell our defensive linemen not to treat the 16th play in a row that's a run as a pass. Like, why are Cox 
and Carter, especially Cox, but also Carter, flying up the field off the edge, running themselves out of the play every time. I thought Dexter was excellent again. Dexter, whenever he had one-on-one, was you can see it on film, he's pushing his guy like four yards into the backfield. And despite him oftentimes almost taking the handoff from Davis Price on the counter plays, they're still gaining 25 yards because nobody else is in the picture. So the D-line is interesting to me because I thought their technique failed them. I also thought the coaching staff failed us because it would have been one thing if we had five D-linemen there and they were getting owned. But look, let's point to the one example we have. One example we have. First down, second down, third down and goal. Towards the end of the game, mm-hmm. Florida gets three quick stops when rushing the football. They gained no yards on second and third down when Florida went to a heavy front. No yards, Allen. None. They scored on that wild play action play. So what does that tell you? Give the D-line a chance in the middle of the field to get on the football field and stop them. So I'm going to I'm gonna have to say like the D-line was frustrating with technique and it was not good. I don't know that they were getting thrown all over the place. They no. were playing with a, a disadvantaged front with no help behind them. But that was not, they did not hero mode it when potentially they could have by playing smarter. For sure. I don't want to kill them, but that had been the strength of the team. And they were not. They were not. Okay. I don't know if I want to talk about anymore. Anything else you want to say about the defense? Uh, I thought Perkins, just a couple quick notes here because we, we follow it each week, right? So I thought Perkins essentially had some good moments. And then he also had a bad moment or two. He got beat once or twice. But the guy's hard to beat. Great makeup speed, really quick. Again, the Trevez versus Perkins battle, it just reminds me of like a Chester Kimbrough moment again who's doing really well for Michigan State. How you don't play the obvious guy there, I don't get that. Or, I mean, more maybe just obviously like the Sean Davis thing. Like he's so much better than these other collection of safeties. So much better. And he's rotating. So just weird personnel stuff that we see to continue. That makes sense. And, uh, you know, I thought Hopper played really well in this game for the most part. Um, you can't do it all by yourself. But especially when he was fresh, you saw him flying around the field in the first half. He's an excellent linebacker. They did play him a lot more. I think he started to to either get a little injured or wear out right towards the end there. Um, but, Which was what happens when you get run on 23. I mean, you just, yeah, especially when they're constantly, you know, you're getting blocked once, twice, everywhere else. So that was it, though. I think this game for me will forever be remembered as the the GT counter game. I mean, that was where one play won you a football game, and football can be like that, but typically it's like that, and you die on the hill trying everything to stop it. And at the end, you say, listen, we threw every possible body count, wrinkle, player, and we couldn't stop them. Congrats to them. Instead of like, well, actually, we tried nothing, and we couldn't stop it. Okay, special teams, not a lot here, even though the wind... Seemed like it was going to play a big factor. Didn't really play that huge a factor in punting and um, in no real big field goals or things like that. We did miss an extra point, which was blocked, but also maybe seemed like upon review that wasn't a very good kick anyway. Didn't yeah, it looks like ultimately. the kick was the issue there. So that's ooh. something to watch out for going forward. But yeah, not really too much to talk about in this area. It wasn't the big factor in the game. Anything else yeah, you want to mention be, there? Because we converted the two, which yes. was good. Could have been. It was trending in that direction. Could have been. But uh, nice conversion of the two. Did you like going for the two-point conversion as early as we did? No, I'm not a big fan of that. I, I usually like to wait because you don't know what's going to happen in a game. But it was getting late enough and the pressure was there. I, I didn't hate it. I liked it there. I like the momentum of that. I think like you're getting – you like Florida was about to surge with this momentum. Richardson's like – feeling it right now 
uh and you know you kind of immediately put yourself like on pace to tie them you put like exhort just you put a lot of game pressure on them whereas if you don't get that i don't know that you really lose game pressure on them too i didn't much. hate it i didn't hate it i like just to let the game play out a little bit longer sure. there was a lot of time left i mean you can go either way i think i liked it because the human element felt right to mm-hmm. try it there and of course richardson converts it all i by like himself. the play call i like yeah. the play call there. they cover the play call and richardson again head up eyes up no no all i can do here is run which he does in a nice conversion Okay. A lot of final thoughts here. This game produced a lot in this category. Yeah, this is really the bulk of our discussion, right? Like everything was tactics, but now this is the meta. So my first question is, is this the AR show moving forward? Um, and then a sub question is, this is how much damage does Mullen do if he starts? There's a lot of questions in here. How much damage or how much pressure around Mullen? This is a very Mullen centric thing because of the, and it's somewhat of his own doing, right? So looking around the national media, right, they're starting to say that, you know, Stuart Mandel, who is the head guy for the athletic is like, it's kind of weird. He hasn't been starting the whole time, question mark. And again, going back, the first time you really, really had to start him, in our opinion, was Vanderbilt because of the injury right now. That moment would have become earlier had he not been injured. But now it's abundantly clear, like, Hey, what we saw from this guy, shouldn't he been playing earlier or at least by this game, right? You've already had the Kentucky loss. You had a chance at Vanderbilt. So I think it's definitive in my mind. This is his team moving forward. It it has to be. There's no reason you have a bye week. You have Georgia coming up. You're not going to beat Georgia with Emory Jones outside of just complete chaos. I know you played well against Alabama, but this Georgia defense is designed to eat your lunch playing the way we've been playing. So how, so I assume you're going to say, yes, this is the AR show moving forward, right? We've talked about that. How much damage does this do for Mullen in the fan base? If he does start Emory, I think it's going to go nuclear. Yes, obviously it should be AR show moving forward. We've chronicled that a ton this whole season and how much damage does it do? I mean, catastrophic damage. It feels like, I'm going to say right now, I'll tell you what, if if Mullen names Emery as the starter or he plays him as the starter, there's going to be an unbelievable revolt. The fans that are in the stadium, social media, Twitter, the national media, this would be such an incredible head in the sand decision that would fit the narrative that a lot of beat writers, people around Dan Mullen say, which is to understand Dan Mullen is to know that he is the smartest guy in the room. And that's not saying that Dan Mullen is the smartest guy in the room. saying he thinks he's the smartest guy in the room. So basically you have to have a lot of pride and a lot of hubris, Allen, to look around at all the evidence, all the data, a lot of other people. Well, not just a lot, every other person. Right. I was going to say, yeah, we'll be kind. Almost every other person who also looks and says, hey, you know what? Like, it seems like this guy's clearly better. And for you to say, oh, no, no, I have the special information you don't know because of insert tired excuse is not going to fly anymore because the cat's out of the bag. You played him, and he's as good as people thought he was going to be, and or now you better. can't unplay him. Yeah, even better. I think most people didn't think he was going to be that good, right? We're probably on the far end of that curve. So the damage is catastrophic because Gator fans, I, I warms my heart, Alan. I feel like the Florida fan base might be one of the most football in tuned fan bases right now. There are a lot of Florida fans who, are, who really know football and their comments aren't just 
I like this guy. He seems athletic. There's good reasons behind what they're saying. There's good statistical arguments. Mullen is dealing with a very intelligent fan base. But this would be, it feels like I want to say like nail in the coffin damage because again, it's such a blind spot that basically it's like a general in a war who is about to commit a horrible strategic decision that is going to doom people. Pickett's charge, essentially. There you go. That's the one I was going to go with, right? To like their death. And someone's got to pull them aside and say, no, 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 no. That cannot be done. It will not be done. It's not happening. That's, I think, the level that we're at. Like, it's just, it's impossible to start Emory Jones. It's impossible in my mind to even play him for a single snap. Assuming Richardson is healthy in the game, stays healthy in the game, and doesn't totally implode to where it's like he's just absolutely lost it. Well, here's here's what... Significant moment here. Significant moment. I think he basically puts his job on the line. That's what it feels like. If you start Emory Jones and you don't win the game. Now, if you start Emory Jones and you win the game... Then you're the smartest guy in the room. Then guess what? I will retract all my criticism of that tactical decision because you won the game. Now, moving forward, we could have different you know, reasons and different things, but you won the game and you beat Georgia when they're the number one team in the country. So you can do all kinds of tactically crazy stuff if you got you that win in that scenario. doesn't mean it's best moving forward still. But I think basically he loses the fan base. Now, I don't think he'll get fired at the end of the year. But he will head into next year with such incredible pressure on him, especially if Anthony Richardson leaves. Oh, that's that's on that's. And, I don't even want to think of that. And becomes a star somewhere else. I don't know that Florida fans ever get over that. No, I would never get over that. That would be completely unacceptable at every level. So now, Dan, even if you're Dan and you think I actually no, I know, I know it's better to play Emory. Well, guess what? Have a little, one, just humility to go, maybe I'm wrong. But also, there's some self-preservation here. Again, I don't like coaches all the time going, I'm just going to do what everybody else thinks. I want you to have conviction, actually. I want you to know what you think is best and go through it, even if that takes courage to do it. But this would just be insanity, right? This is the pickets charge thing, right, that everyone else is saying that I shouldn't do it. No one's going to blame you if you start Anthony Richardson and he doesn't play well and you lose. Zero people in the world, we'll say, ah, you messed up. Well, there might be one or two or three because it's the world we live in. Sure. But sure, rationality would be on your side. And so, again, maybe this is a big combo that we're having right now, and it's like a big nothing burger because he starts Richardson because he's supposed to, right? But just wanted to highlight, this is a crossroads for Dan Mullen. It should not be, right? This should be easy. This is 101. Like, play the guy. Layup. Layup. Now, let's look at Oklahoma for a second. Okay. Their decision was a lot tougher. He benches Spencer Rattler, number one overall quarterback, Heisman favorite, not playing well, goes into the off week, gives the classic, you know, he gave a more ringing endorsement for sure of Caleb Williams than Dan Mullen did, but also said, yeah, we'll figure it out this week, which like what you mentioned, which is what, that's what coaches do. But on Saturday, who took every single snap? Yeah. And that's fine. You know, if Dan Mullen- And that's how, that's okay. But the the point is like that, again, if, if you're a fan of Oklahoma, Allen- your confidence just continues to build in your coach because A, he's not out there saying disparaging things about people or things, and B, he is making tough decisions. That was a tough decision. Make no mistake about that. It was not easy for him to bench Heisman, hopeful. He's got a deal now with his parents, his family, that press, but he did it because it was best for the team. Yeah, I, from the outside, it's not that difficult a decision. I mean, it is, 
Sure. Well, it's an obvious one if you, if winning is the most important thing to you and your team. But that's why for us, the point being, as Florida fans, we're all damaged. Not actually damaged, you know, like in a in a we need therapy sense, but we're all damaged from the standpoint of like, I can't believe right now that we have to have this discussion, but we have to have it. Like, what happens if Emory starts? Like, how is that even a real thing? That's what. How is that a real thing? But it is wrong. a real thing. It's a real thing. Like, it could happen. It's unbelievable. So yes, the damage is full on catastrophic if that happens. And I thought that was the damage when we kept Grantham last year. It was going to cost us more games. It was a catastrophic decision, and he did it. So who's to say he won't do this? That's a great point. We'll see. Well, we'll let it play out. We won't go nuts about a decision that hasn't been made yet. But here's an interesting coaching hot seat corollary. So Ed Orgeron, who was on such a hot seat that he got fired essentially, I think there had to be negotiations before the game. Oh, for sure. I think he knew that he was out. So is the corollary of hot, hot coaching hot seat theories that does it transfer to the guy he beats if that guy's in the hot seat and he beats you does that mean you're you have to be on the hot seat it's always a bad look especially if you're the favorite by double digits does right. it transfer no but it's never a good look and in this case it's a more interesting look than most because you can directly compare which we have done many times to the delight of everyone in this podcast i obviously put ed Orgeron above dan mullen in my coaching rankings and ed Orgeron is three and one against dan mullen Two times he's beaten him with half a roster. So you could say it's a fluke. Maybe Dan Mullen's beaten everyone else, right? He owns Nick Saban, Jimbo Fisher, etc. He doesn't. So I think when you see the national media, and you mentioned this, Alan, the national media, not Florida beat writers, not your local people, they're writing articles. You see Tuscaloosa papers writing articles. Dan Mullen's not the guy for Florida. And they're citing data. Here's the record. Here's Edo's record. Here's everyone else's record. Here's what's happening. I don't know that the hot seat transferred. I think we've chronicled on this yeah. very podcast that it's built and built to build. But, but to your point, if you're in California, you don't follow the SEC, and now all of a sudden you're hearing Dan Mullen is potentially on a hot seat, that would feel like completely brand new news to you. Didn't he just almost beat Alabama last year? And that's how it feels if you're not following a program closely. But I think to any Florida fan tied up closely, like we said it. This game with LSU was super significant. It was a game he couldn't lose. Yeah, and he did. And couldn't lose is too strong, but it, it definitely takes a bigger chunk out of you than even that Kentucky game in some sense. Right? Yeah, couldn't lose without significant damage to yeah. his reputation and where people think the program could go. Right, because obviously you let's compare it to Alabama. Like losing that game takes no damage. You, no damage. You, you no. actually probably improved your stock, right? Correct. Um yeah, so, you know, LSU was bad last year. Florida was good last year. LSU is still bad this year. Oh, yeah. So moving forward, I think Florida will still have the better record. So it's not a total, like, one-to-one, but it's, I guess, bottom line, it's not a good look. Okay, what's a worse look in my mind? Can I go to Diabate's comments? We should have had these, like, pulled up. Yeah, well, essentially, well, we can just paraphrase them. I think most people seemingly have seen them, right? But right, he essentially says, we made the adjustments we made. Yeah, they asked the question, and he says several things. One, which is, did, did you make any adjustments? He said, we did what the coaches you know, wanted us to do. I'm a soldier out there. I just as the adjustments. Where and the then they fire. asked another follow-up question. He said, what you saw in the box was the box. We were doing what we're told. Which is basically, again, smart guy. He has thoughts of his own. 
saying we weren't doing anything wrong. We were doing what they wanted us to do. Now, you can't always believe players. Diabate is one that is more likely right, to be were, believable. Those were, con- those were comments that were thoughtful. Calculated. He's not, correct. He's not a guy who's just saying stuff or no, throwing out cliches. So when he spoke up about it, that got my notice. He's a thoughtful guy. doesn't mean he can't be emotional or wrong or whatever. But And he said, do you have confidence? He says, I have confidence in my teammates. Yes, that's big. Right, purposely play hard and throws that like in, that, right? But and we've seen that they're playing hard, confident, but no, no expressed confidence in the coaches. No, and actually, I mean, if read between the giant lines, there it's very easy to see between them. I have we made no tactical changes, and that was very frustrating, unbelievably frustrating. In fact, we mentioned there were a lot of post game comments here. There was and, one from I think Sean Davis who's basically said something like. Someone said that we haven't been DBs. Well, Michael P. Ryan. Yes. Michael P. Ryan. He's not that. He's been here. Who's in the NFL, comes he, out. Yeah, he was here like two years ago. And so. basically is saying like, yeah, we really haven't. Well, he's he's. it's an indictment on Grantham, right? Yeah. Essentially like, hey, like we've lost that moniker. We're we haven't not, been DBs since great. 2016. And then Sean Davis comes out, who's also a cerebral player, right? Made it to the NFL. He, he says, hey, man, chill. Like we were playing basically quarters defense as man. The junk is way different in the NFL. Like it's taught way different. Meaning like nobody runs what Florida runs, which which is largely true. We talk about that a lot. It's very simple. It's very basic. And it's causing good players to get exposed more than they would. You had Joey Ivey come out about Dan Mullen and say, you know, hey, look, I played for him. Like basically his, his just smugness, his cockiness, his just, it's just going to be the end of him. Like he's not likable in that way and when you start to lose these things come out right but alan what i want to ask you is there's a world where dan mullen could have been handling all of these post-game comments much differently we've chronicled all of them it's Mm -hmm. consistently graded on me it really grates on me how much are mullen's post-game comments increasing the pressure on him a lot like i think we said before that when he says something like he said about richardson it creates two narratives one that you don't see it so you're kind of oblivious, which is not good, or you're being disingenuous and kind of smug. And his PR skills are not like the most important thing to me. If he was winning games and is like, man, you know, I don't love his post game comments. Literally, whatever. Like maybe it's a, a growth point for him, but I wouldn't really care. In this moment, though, he's just ratching it up for no reason at all. His combative nature in the press conferences or his like, I don't know. Unwillingness to engage with what everyone else is talking about is really harmful for him. I don't think he realizes it. Or maybe he does and is just so stubborn that he won't pull out of it. Well, that's the crazy it, thing. It's right? increasing it's, the pressure, though. Yeah. Oh, the pressure is way higher. Like if you had a coach who was honest and was saying, hey, look, you know what? Maybe I got some stuff wrong. I don't know everything. I'm trying my best. Uh, it's, certainly I was wrong about, you know, this or that. Or I love Anthony Richardson. I probably should have played him earlier. Hey, man, absolutely. Welcome to being a person who consistently has to make tough decisions and get them wrong, says everyone, right? Like your goal is to just have more right decisions on your ledger than wrong ones, but you're going to have wrong ones. And as long as they're well-intentioned and logical and supportable, no one's no rational person is going to get mad at you for that. Of course, the internet trolls and the irrational people are going to say stupid things, but no, no human has foresight. But he does the opposite of that. And it's divisive, is what you said. I think that's the key word. His comments are divisive. Sometimes they divide players. They almost always divide the fans versus him. And they also make 
other people seem like idiots. So that's like check, check, check for the worst things that you could do in your postgame pressers. Look, Belichick, for all the crap he gets, Alan, he pretty much just doesn't say anything to the media. But he's not making Patriots fans feel stupid. He's not dividing his players against him. And he's known as like a ruthless, hard guy to play for. But even him in the media is not doing some of the things Dan Mullen does. So Dan Mullen's kind of out there on his own with how he handles these things. And it's seemingly no one can get through to him. I, I refuse to believe that Strickland has not sat him down and said, look, are you aware of what this is doing to your persona? I like you. You're my friend. We've known each other. You're, you're losing support. Like you're eroding your own base. And that makes Strickland's job harder. So yeah, right. a world, a world for no where, reason. For no reason. So a world where Dan Mullen's comments were kind and positive and good, he would have more support. People would be frustrated, but there would be more support. But it is absolutely increasing the pressure on him, without a doubt. I mean, he just does himself no favors. None. Okay. You guys liked our little, I'm going to make the other person take a position. Well, it seems like most of you did. We had one yeah. negative comment, but mostly positive. So we're going to carry on. Yeah. Well, okay. That's fine. I liked it. So we'll do it again, too. All right, so I'm on the hot seat, I guess, this time. You're going to make me defend a position. What would you, what, what take would you like me to have here? Oh, well, this is an easy one. Uh, obviously, I cannot in any world defend Grantham staying for even a second longer, as I've said for two years now. So you're going to have to say defend that keeping Grantham is better for the short term. That's your position. Win me over. Okay, well, th- this is pretty simple. All my focus here is going to be on beating Georgia. So even though there's a bye week, and it might seem like the optimal time to make a change, it would be harder to reinvent ourselves, to change the things that would be involved in swapping out our defensive coordinator. The rest of the season are variable, winnable games, right? This is about a one-game scenario here. I want to beat Georgia. Um, His contract is up at the end of the year doesn't do much to demote him because I want to beat Georgia and this is the best path forward. We can beat Samford and Missouri and FSU with him in there. So yeah, even though he's not great, he's still better than the other options I have on my staff. I'm not convinced. <laughs> I can't even believe you even tried that. I mean, I, I thought laughed. it was pretty good. Honestly, it was great. I don't, I don't even have to make an argument. Listen to all the podcasts from which I've said on the other side, this guy has been here for how long has he been here? Four years. He's been here for four years too long. He's certainly been here for two years too long after it was blatantly clear that Florida could not beat a quality team with him. It's on film. It's his demeanor, his persona. It's so you would fire you would check 1.8 million. So let me say, I, I know your opinions on it. So you would, all right, the, I'm actually going to empower you. Empower maybe you don't him. fire him, quote unquote, because then you'd have to buy him out maybe, but you like. It's pro rata. You can, here you go. Have the money, Todd. You already, you already have it. Okay. I mean, okay. It's a sunk cost. I'm a business guy. It's a sunk cost. I'm paying you the money anyway. Just get out of here. All shut right. the door. See you later. You can, or you can like demote him or ask him just gone. to like, Out the door. Don't come back. So you would Pay do it in the bye week. Right you now. think that actually already gone. prove our chances of beating Georgia next week? Sure. I don't even care if it does or doesn't. You have to send a message to your team of accountability. And look, we've said this before, and I'm going to say it now again, because it can feel like on a podcast when I, especially me, you know, when I'm saying things like, hey, fire this guy, do this. It's like emotionless. It's cold. It's feelingless. That's not an easy thing to do, right? Grantham and Mullen are friends. Firing somebody is hard. You also don't ever fire someone. And Alan, you and I had like a whole podcast segment on this. You don't fire someone from a position of like malice or hatred or like, oh, I got you. You fire someone from 
this one standpoint only. Is this person helping this entire organization, which is more than Dan Mullen, it's more than Strickland, it's more than Grantham, it's more than Richardson or anyone else, is this person helping contribute to that goal? The second that you have enough evidence to indicate that that person is not capable of helping you reach that goal, what must be done eventually must be done now. There's no reason to carry it. It's not being harsh to Grantham. It's not being harsh to anyone else. He's already overstayed his welcome, which is why now the frustration is going to Dan Mullen and not Grantham. And keeping him sends a sign to your players that, hey, no matter what your work product is, we will keep you. There's no accountability. Life is about accountability. If the job is not getting done well, you must give someone else a chance to do the job. And you must send a message to your team because right now, Alan, in the locker room, Diabate pretty much told you, we are not on board with the captain of our ship. And we've been patient and we have waited and we are not on board. So, hey, here's something fun. Defensive players out there listening to the podcast. Some of you do. Pass it along. Just strike. Hey, I'm not going to play against Georgia unless Grantham is gone. Because this guy is hurting you and your prospects and your career and your team. So you're on the ship. Hold a vote. Who wants to keep Grantham? That's called a mutiny, my friend. And it's time for a mutiny. Because maybe then Captain Mullen, who just refuses to see what all of his players, you know, soldiers in the field, if you will, are saying about a general, it's time to listen to this. So he's got to go. It's got to be now. This is not uncommon. It's normal. People do this all the time. Not Dan Mullen, obviously. He doesn't do this. So I fully expect him to be here until the end of the year, and we'll get to read more comments about how, quote, my view of Todd and the defense is the same that it was yesterday and every other day, and I have great belief that we're great on defense. So I would make a change right here, too. I mean, if if you had one game at the end of the year, maybe just write it out, but you have a chance to beat the number one team in the nation, and somebody on that staff has to be capable. Of course they are. They have new ideas. You know they do. Or just of calling the plays, even if you're not absolutely, you don't have to invent new schematic formations. We have all those in our playbook. They're already all there. Yeah, absolutely. Put someone else in there. And I, if it were me, I think the guy that you promote, you know, in that situation is probably you know Wesley McGriff. I think a guy who has been Auburn for a long time that had a lot of successful defenses that he was a part of and around. Tenured guy. I, we don't know. Alan and I are on, I'm not on the inside. David Turner. I don't. I don't know and, if he's ever been a coordinator. You know, same anywhere. thing. Like D line right. guys tend not to always be that way. But we're just wildly, wildly speculating. Speaking. But the point is, anybody, somebody, let them make mistakes and fail, move on. But I think you give your team a lift. I think you give your defense a lift. I think you give your fan, fans a lift, Alan. And we said this last year. If he would have fired Grant, then he would have given the entire program a lift. New defensive coordinator, new ideas, new way to go. We missed the opportunity last year. We missed it two years ago. We're going to miss it again now if we don't do it. Beating Georgia, wrecking their season, would be well worth it for any Gator fan, right? This is a big game that Florida could steal and win. Give yourself the best chance to win. But again, Dan Mullen seems to specialize in trying to win these games with one or two arms tied behind his back. It's almost a specialty. So I'm almost expecting that we get, like it happens while... We're on the podcast that he gets fired, although that wouldn't actually happen. Of course not. End of the season, you'll read about it. If we're lucky, because look, at this point in time, maybe they'll give him an extension. All right. Anything else you want to know before we move on to the next segment? I sure do. So we haven't talked about whether or not I would keep Dan Mullen on the staff at all. Hmm. Now, we've already said this. I already said at the end of last year that Dan Mullen failed his three-year test. 
I then said, you and I discussed this, that he had deserved one more year because there's a lot of things he does well and he can't get out of his own way on some of these other things that matter, being the CEO, recruiting, personnel decisions, right? The other things that do matter for being a championship head coach. So I just want to do a quick review. We're going to talk about this more as the year goes on. We're not going to make the definitive here's, you know, the end all be all. But Dan Mullen right now has a lower winning percentage in the SEC than Ron Zook. Let that settle. He's two and six in his last eight against power five teams. Which is a little bit cherry picking, but go ahead. Okay. He's four and 10 versus Saban, Fisher, Smart, Orgeron, and Stoops. Easily could be one and three against Stoops. He's two and two. Comments by Anthony Richardson. Not a great look. Your quarterback, who's generational, loves the Gators, comes out after the game and basically is like, maybe I'm here right now. Who knows, right? Time will tell. Uh, Comments by the former players we've talked about. Obviously, you failed the three-year test, which is a big, big deal for me. Something I created. It's not something that's ubiquitous or out there, but it is what it is. Keeping Grantham last year, you know, maintaining these personnel decisions. He's the sixth highest paid coach, making more money than Kirby Smart, Ryan Day, and others. This season now, if we lose to Georgia, Allen will be the 10th time out of his 13 seasons that he'll have four losses. Granted, he's in Mississippi State where you're going to lose more games. So this is it. This is me. This is where I'm at. I felt like he needed one more year. Short of him having a a Paul conversion on the road to Damascus where, you know, he just has a life change. He's basically like, look, I've seen the errors of my ways. I'm a talented guy. I do some things really well. I haven't been humble enough to surround myself with people that will tell me things I don't want to hear and that I will listen to, right? Because wisdom, Alan, wisdom in the gray area of life is fluidity. When two plus two equals four, wisdom is anchoring yourself to that mathematical calculation. When you don't know what the formula is or what the answer is, wisdom is being fluid, not being stuck in the mud. That is not wisdom. That's ignorance. Dan Mullen so far has been more ignorant than wise on fluid issues. Here's what he is. Dan Mullen is a championship-capable offensive coordinator when he's paired with a championship-capable coach. That's what he is. That's what he's proven he is. Therefore, as a head coach, he's average, in my opinion, at a big school. And he's a great lifetime coach for either a lower power five school or a school without championship expectations. I think at Florida, at this point in time, all of the evidence indicates, all of the evidence indicates that he's not a championship level coach. And anyone who thinks that he could be is basically creating things that Dan Mullen himself has never proven to be. And saying, well, if this happens and if that happens, that could happen. And I agree with that formula. We could create things. We've done this before. If this happens and that happens, then this could happen. I said like a month ago, Dan Mullen could have a really high ceiling as a championship head coach if these things happen. But at this point in time, you have to really, really ask yourself, think about it. Food for thought. How do you get Dan Mullen from where he is to where those things have to happen? And where's the evidence to indicate that will happen beyond just your hope that it happens? And so that's where I am. I think he's a championship-capable offensive coordinator with with a championship-capable coach, but he's not a championship head so, coach. And I think there's enough evidence to confidently now say, if Florida wants to win championships, they need a coach that expects to win championships. And Dan Mullen is not making the decisions to lead to that. He's functioning more like an amazing O.C., who hangs his hat on that and expects maybe 
things will happen for him if the stars align. So are you firing him right now then? You basically just said as much. I am I am my time with Dan Mullen is done. <laughs> so I don't fire him in the middle of the season, but much like I said with McElwain, I reached the point where I had said my well, time with McElwain. Well, right. So I'm empowering you so, to make a choice. Yeah, Maybe you don't no, fire no, him. No, 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 not right now. No, no, no. I would yeah, at the end of the year I would be I would be done. Still has a chance to be I would be done with Dan Mullen yeah. at the end of the year if there's no road to Damascus conversion. Okay. So I, if there was a heart change, if if there was a if there was a look again, Dan Mullen has a high ceiling if we can fix some of these things, right? The null hypothesis says he is who he is, and he hasn't changed anything. So if that maintains itself into January, I look at it and I say, I think I have to give a shot to the next person who has proven that they aren't a championship winning coach yet. Whereas I think Dan Mullen has proven that he isn't one. So who want, so the jury be out on somebody else. You're going to take another shot. Uh, yeah, you'd fire a shot. Again, here's yeah. the key, right? Hiring in 10 seconds or less is taking shots at someone who has not proven they aren't a championship coach. The odds of them becoming one are small. So this is where we're, we're in the future. We're going to get yeah, into yeah, this yeah. discussion of like, what does that look like? What kind of program do you want to be? Of course, you could fall way off if you try that stuff, right? There's a lot of risk reward scenarios here, but don't get me wrong for everyone out there thinking they can create ways where Dan Mullen could win a title generational quarterback with Anthony Richardson, get a defensive coordinator who's good enough, right? I can create those narratives too. I want those narratives to be true, but I just, there's no evidence. He's been a coach for a long time. You go back to the Mississippi state stuff. He does the same thing. He's doing the same thing over and over and over and over again. So unless somebody gets through to him, it's impossible to expect. He's going to do the things that championship coaches do. And that's frustrating because he does have narratives you can create to get there. But I haven't seen it. And so, again, short of that conversion, I think we have a guy who's proven enough now that that championship path is not out there. Okay, so I if if I'm empowered by Scott Strickland and makes a decision at the end of the year, right? We're not, I'm not, I don't think and you're we still have right time now. to evaluate things, of course. Right. But you're basically saying I'm pulling the trigger unless there's like a crazy renovation conversion. Here. Yeah. I feel I in like his heart. Conversion. He's a different person. <laughs> he has a religious experience. He um, has, yes. He has a coming. coming I'm going to give him another year. I mean, again, there, there's still data left, but not much is new year, new D coordinator. And right. that's another, and that's, that's valid. Like I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that's like a, you know, train wreck decision because new DC, what happens with that is, does he get a Bob Stoops? Does yes. he get a guy who challenges him? Because again, you can win that way. And so, yeah, you know, I think that's perfectly reasonable too. Yeah. And so I'm going to give him another year. And if it doesn't go the way I want it to, I think you start having to make some real hard choices. So, and I think that's the more prudent path because right. you have Richardson. Now I'm at wave a wand, no Richardson, just well, Emory Jones next year. The conversation changes, but when you have a guy like that and Dan Mullen recruited him, and he's responsible for how he's developing. I'm gonna. I've given plenty of credit. I'm, I'm giving him credit. Championship OC is not a label I throw on just anyone. He's very, very good at that. So maybe he gets the stars to align. But Spurrier Allen was a great offensive mind. Paid no attention to defense, but he was very, very different than Dan Mullen. So very different in how he viewed winning, what he wanted to have happen. Just a totally different persona. And Mullen so far, it's just hard to know if he's willing to do the things that you have to do to win. So I don't disagree with anything you've said. I don't, your reasoning I think is very valid. Um, yeah, famously, I'm the one uh, slow to come to these conclusions, although it's funny in real life. Uh, only paired against you am I seen as like not opinionated. 
people who know me would think that's funny. I'm, um, just, I'm too extreme for my own right. good. <laughs> but yes, we'll, we'll get into that. That's a conversation that I think is burgeoning here. I'm glad you broached it. But yeah, that that's coming for Dan Mullen. Like he's going to have to deviate off the path he's on. The path he's on is leading to him getting fired. That's not, well said. Not now. That's well eventually. said though. Yeah, that is the that is that's well said. Continuing on this path will lead to that. Yeah. All right, before we get to the coaching corners, hard pivot here from quite the hard pivot from firing Dan Mullen here. Let's talk about HelloFresh though. Did you know James is America's most popular meal kit? I don't know if did you know that? I, I didn't know that until we had them sponsor us graciously, and now I do. Well, fall is busy, as I'm sure you know. It's busy for you. You're a man of many hats. But HelloFresh recipes save time you'd otherwise spend meal planning. You don't spend a lot of meal planning yourself. No, I just I just live at restaurants to go take out in person, whatever. It's easy and great. I love it. But if you're like me and you actually do cook some meals or your family cooks some meals, uh, meal planning, shopping, shopping, it's a lot. So you can get back to what matters most. HelloFresh offers 50 menu and market items to choose from every week, from vegetarian meals and calorie smart choices to extra special gourmet options. There's something for everyone to enjoy with recipes designed and tested by professional chefs and nutritional experts to ensure deliciousness and simplicity. Get better value. HelloFresh is over 30% cheaper than shopping at grocery stores with pre-proportioned ingredients that ensure you won't spend money on excess food that ends up going in the trash. Go to HelloFresh.com slash GatorNation14 and use that code GatorNation14 for up to 14 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash GatorNation14. Yeah, so 14 free meals on us, if you there will. There you go. Check that out. Good stuff. All right, Coaching Corner, I love it. You guys are crushing this each week. Keep sending them to me, Twitter, Patreon, Facebook, whatever. It's uh, There's always good stuff happening across the football landscape. This is an NFL-centric one. I love the NFL. We got a lot of NFL ones. A lot of good stuff going on in the NFL this year. A lot of close games. Philly on Thursday night versus the Bucks. I like this one, Alan, for you. They go for a two-point conversion with five minutes left in the game. So it's 28-20. They can go for one, make it 28-21. They're down seven. Instead, they go for two to make it 28-22 against Tom Brady and the Bucks with five minutes left. It's unconventional. Do you like this decision? I, this is really interesting thinking about this. This is a good Because it's one. not your like normal chart kind of scenarios, Definitely right? Definitely not. Way outside the chart. The aggressiveness I like that we're going to position ourselves to win the game, especially if you have a two-point conversion in the bag. But I don't know. It might be a little too aggressive for my nature. I don't know, though. I haven't really thought about this. One. What do you think? I loved it because it applies, game theory-wise, it applies real pressure on it the does. Bucks that wasn't there. So if you get one, yeah, Tom Brady and the boys go out there, and if they get stopped, yeah, whatever, defense will make a stop. Worst case scenario, we're tied, and I'll drive down and score. But there's a, there's real pressure now put on you. Hey, wait a minute. We are in jeopardy of outright losing the game if we get stopped. And, of course, pressure can lead to errors. It can lead to you know a good play turning bad. I like the application of pressure because I don't think the Eagles really lost much there. Whatever the Bucks gained in like, oh, we got a little breathing room, I think was offset by what the Eagles gained by putting pressure on them. They didn't win the game, but I think if you're the Eagles, your chance of beating Tom Brady and the Bucks is smaller anyway. Why not do a little something to try to get Sure, if you're the underdog, I do like that. If yeah, a little bit of gamesmanship. If you're the favorite, of course, you wouldn't do this. You would trust yourself to get the stop and score again, but I liked it in their role. Sure, go for it. That was creative, right? The Patriots did something very un-Bill Belichick. 
Perhaps Tom Brady was the key to success all those oh, years. Oh, man. They punt in overtime on fourth down and three. Now, famously, Belichick before has gone for these. Peyton Manning, other teams. Do you remember what yard line they were on? Uh, they were like on their own side of the field, like the 40-ish yard line. But, but here's the trick. They did the same thing against Peyton. Dak and the Cowboys were shredding them. It was a miracle they were in this football game. Totally. Miracle. There was no reason to think they were not going to drive down and score on you. Are you surprised he didn't roll the dice there on fourth and three and just say, look, we're not going to stop him anyway? Right. I wasn't watching this live. Um, I am surprised. I would like to, you know, I love Belichick. I would like to ask him. I don't know if he gave a full answer to that in the post game, but tactically, I'm sure there was something going on in his brain. But man, the older I get and the more I watch football, the less I want to punt. Yes. I almost want to punt none. Now, certain scenarios where, like, mathematically you just have to punt, but I love the philosophy. Don't yeah. punt. Well, especially in overtime when you control your own destiny. And, again, it's one thing if the Cowboys weren't driving. I mean, they were shredding the pats. It was, again, a miracle this game wasn't already over. Perhaps you're thinking, let's play defense. You know, Belichick's a defensive guy. We'll get a lucky stop. I've got a rookie quarterback, right? There's reasons you can sure. justify it, of course. It's not – it would have been – people would have said it was crazy for me to go for it. But I actually think, oddly enough – it was crazier they didn't go for it because I just think they turned over their fate to a Dallas Cowboys team with a phenomenally good offense this year. Kellen Moore doing big things as an OC out there. All right, the Vikings. Oh, the Vikings. They're like weekly in this entry. Mike Zimmer. The Vikings do something else. Super zany for the NFL, Allen. They're up 28-20, and they're driving. They lose three yards, unfortunately for them, on a rushing play, making it fourth down and 11. Fourth and 11, setting up a 54-yarder. A 54-yard field goal to go up 31-20 with like a minute and change left, effectively ending the game. They instead elect to take a delay of game and punt. Now, in college, you can define this a lot. Like, hey, not worth it. Kicker's not very good. A long field for a college football team is tough. But in the NFL, delay game punt, of course. Of course, the Panthers drive down and score, get the two-point conversion. They go to overtime where the Vikings do win. But do you like, in the NFL, not attempting a 54-yard kick? No, I don't. And again, if your if your reasoning leads you to punt, I feel like that's just a you your process is probably broken. Definitely. You have a chance to knock the opponent out and you're up a score and a two point conversion. So you even have extra margin. For I feel error. like most coaches if like their if their reasoning, like the whatever kind of flow chart in their brain is like if the outcome is punt, they're like, Oh good, good outcome. <laughs> Yeah, punting is yeah, good. That I is, like I think that's super true. Yeah, it's very safe. Like mine is like, okay, I go down my Rubik to go punt. I need to go back up to the top and do it again. Make sure I didn't miss one of the tactics earlier. Am I sure about one of these preconceptions that I have? I want my outcome to lead me to not punt. And this is a canary where they basically like, like you know, it'd be better here, punting. Punting. Yeah, I love that. I love what you said. The flowchart always goes back to punting, and they love it. You're not wrong. A lot of risk aversion out there. All right, the Dolphins. This is one. I love this one. I'm a Dolphins fan. I love it for that. Hold on. Let's, hey, before you get into this. Let's, yeah, please. You're Jags. Jacksonville Jaguars, NFL game winners. Let's they, go. They have won. You're Jags. All it took was Urban just doing some uh, some shady stuff, and they get a dubs in London. <laughs> but uh, here's the thing, Alan. Your Jags uh-huh. beat my Dolphins. They did. And this is something we've talked about a lot on Coaching Corners. It's been a staple of ours defensive teams calling timeouts when the offense does not have a timeout anymore or they only have one and that's going to be key because they only had one this is a big important thing here clock is rolling 
you're the Dolphins. It's third down. Clock is rolling. Just keep saying that. Clock is rolling. 11 seconds, 10 seconds, 9 seconds. You are out of field goal range. It's like a 65-yarder. Six seconds, timeout Dolphins. Six seconds. It's an important number. Timeout Dolphins. Dolphins call timeout because they want to get their Hail Mary defense lined up because they're worried they perhaps don't have their Hail Mary defense lined up. Then, this has got to give Urban, Urban credit here. This is a very Urban-like thing. Urban says in the post-game press conference, as soon as that happened, they're on the horn. Hey, wait a minute. We practice a play every single week. That's called a five or six second play. It's called a slide. Throw the ball, get down, timeout. Because again, the Jags only had one timeout one left. Timeout. So if they called timeout for the Hail Mary, they couldn't run this play. Now they have one. Ah, ha, ha. Dolphins are back in their Hail Mary defense. Bada bing, extra 10 or 11 yards for the Jags, setting up a potential game-winning field goal, which of course they make. We have chronicled this a lot. What are these? Explain to me what these defensive teams are thinking when they're doing this. Because they're thinking defensive oriented first. Like, what my primary thing is getting my defense set up rather than like winning the game. I, and it's it's overcoaching is what it is. Honestly. Overcoaching. Is so right. I have this timeout. I can't not use it now. We've you grill coaches for like going. Hey, you don't get to keep those timeouts. But you're very right that they called it. If they call it with one second left, fine. I still probably wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it either. Put the pressure. It puts the pressure on the other team. Correct. Right Pressure's now, if you realize, shoot, we have like, wait, we're doing something wrong here. Call the timeout to fix it, which is a failure by you in the first place. Because right. again, in the NFL, especially, all you have to do is put the signal in for prevent, and I don't care who's on the field. All of those guys can execute a prevent defense. And guess what? A college team, you don't have to be so exacting. They're probably not going to be able to run that play. The no. five second, six second play. Sure. But it was just bad. It was mismanagement on every mismanagement. level. Mismanagement. We see it a lot. It's really head-scratching. All right, one more. Back to the Cowboys, because this is another one that's obvious. So the Cowboys get into field goal range. Dak Prescott and the boys. The Patriots were up in this game, a wild game. It's fourth and one on the 30-yard line with 20 seconds left. And inexplicably, inexplicably, Alan, the Cowboys call timeout. Which essentially gave the Patriots the ball back. Now, there's only like 18 seconds, but it doesn't matter. In that situation, you know you're not going to go for it. You're kicking the field goal. You just let it go down to three seconds, and you call a timeout like you see every single week in the NFL. I think they thought maybe they had a first down is what happened, and they got excited and called timeout, right? Uh, but obviously, you know, look, teams have lost in that kind of time in the NFL. Let so that this go is, down, kick the field goal. This is the Mike McCarthy of it all. That's why people don't trust him because he does stuff like this, and – Again, the running NFL team is just a giant endeavor. Just have your little mathematical analyst clock guy next to you for these types of things. Uh, you don't want to call a timeout here because this is going to give them more. Or if you call a timeout, make sure you're using this. Or this is how much time you will save. Can you can you run out the clock doing this? This is just like a weird one. And uh, McCarthy is prone to this type of stuff. So Yeah, it just makes too much sense. But again, have somebody. Just employ someone. I can't believe coaches don't do this after all this stuff. Hey, Alan, if you and I take a coaching job somewhere, <laughs> we are going to have somebody, even though I love strategy and you do too, I will still employ someone to do it for me because we'd have too many things to think about. So there's that. All right, now it's 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 fun. It's a fun time here for a moment. Every year we read out the list of anyone who has ever donated to us as a patron because we love our patrons. And we start in historical order, Alan. Okay. So we're going to read the very first person, which I already know that person is, their heart is warmed. They call themselves the number one fan. 
And they have a legitimate claim to that. And now they are a dono legend. On August 23rd of 2017, the very first patron, the very first dono was given to this podcast, and it was by one Tyler Rummery. <laughs> there you go, Tyler. Calls himself the first really uh, you know, podcast fan. Of the first fan of the podcast. The Gator Nation football podcast, which is awesome. Right, I'm going to read some of these. I'm going to stop, Alan, then you just pick up, and we'll yeah. just carry on. All right, so Andrew Amend, Jason Thies, my college roommate, Jason Landry, who had mentioned to me in a text, Alan, that Florida is now, in his opinion, Dan Mullen is past the event horizon. Everything mm. here just leads to, as you said, the eventual path of him being fired. Who knows when? Micah Pounders, uh, Chris Barales, Lon Stafford. Brian Sumner, also a guy I knew in college. Josh Duty, oftentimes our stat guy stat here man. in Gainesville. Diego Rivera, man, a early king. Yeah, Diego Rivera, been a longtime supporter. Matthew Brigman, Tyler Pierce, Josh Hostetler. We played basketball together Ross. on a team called Motion is the Effing Offense. That's right. That was our team name. Matthew Fry, Liam White, Ian McFetridge, Joel Whitehead, Mike Davis. In our, in our fantasy league. Absolutely, Mike Davis in our fantasy league. All right, you, you carry on, Alan. All right, Adam Ridenauer, what's up, buddy? Craig Anderson, Evan Davis, Keith Copenhaver, the man known as Esteban. Love that one every year. Zachary David Helmuth, Mark Ragland, fellow Jags compatriot. We like to commiserate about that. Eccentricity.ll. It's a good one. Zach Sparks. Zach Sparks, absolutely. Go. Went to the AM game with him. Carly McMullen and Ryan Belmore. She may, she may be the first female of the GNFP, Carly McMullen. I think my my wife. Our yeah, she counts. Manager. We always say that she was invested in it. So she's there like the go. first outsider. Ryan Belmore. What's up, Belly? Rick Kingsley. Close friend of the Man, pod. Rick, I mean, Kingsley. Yeah, yeah, There's some great people. Jeffrey Hoy, I text about every week. Oh, Jeffrey, yeah. your support is always appreciated. Jeff, Josh Ball, Cameron McCaskill, Warren Bucknam, Try and Dewey. That's it. All right, why don't you take the rest of these? All right. Andrew Burgeon, Davis Hale. Let's go, Davis. Uh, Eric Collar, Garrett Pignotti, Jeremy Bloor, Cody Flitcraft, Etienne Jair Rosman. Good job. Yeah, hopefully. Scott Stowell or Stoll, uh, Stephen Kirkhoff, Garrett, Logan Wild. Played a fight football with Logan. Great guy. One of the best pump fakes in all the biz. Good to know. Yeah, Gainesville guy as well. Uh, Nick Harris. Nick frequently messages me. Great guy. His kids are like uber gators already. And then Charles Sellers. So thanks to all of you for supporting us. If you haven't supported us yet, thanks for listening. Uh, either way, we love all of you. We appreciate it. We've said it before. We'll keep saying it. We do the show. We do the stuff. We do the film breakdowns because essentially people enjoy the content. Otherwise, we wouldn't do it. So thanks for your support. It means everything to us. And with that, we will get to the games that we picked. Recap brought to you by BetUS. If you are looking for a sports book that is one of the oldest online books, BetUS is the one that you want. You can use our special promo code GNation125, GNation125 to get a 125% sign-up bonus. If you start with 100 bucks, you'll get an additional $125 added to your account. You can also use our code GNation200. If you don't remember those, just go to our Twitter or Facebook or Patreon page and you'll see those codes right there. Very easy to sign up. Of course, if you use one of those codes, you're also supporting the show as we get a hundo bomb for each person that signs up. So visit BetUS.com and sign up today where you can bet, if you're daring, Daytona Steve's picks, which we will release later on in the episode. All right, Alan, games we picked recap. You 
went a smolderingly hot eight and two. Climb my way out of above five hundred. There, yes, you are. I went seven and three. You're now forty eight and forty five on the season. Seven and three is nothing to sneeze at. No, though, and forty five and forty nine for me. And we said, look, I said last week, this is when we turn it around. Oh well, and we we'll answered, see. We answered the bell, so now we have to keep Good answering the bell. You. All right. UCF at number three, Cincinnati. Cincinnati favored by 20. They won 56-21. Yeah, I thought this would be the outcome. Cincinnati, man, it's looking really tough. If you're not elite, they're going to just handle you. They're going to handle you. And look, USC now, LSU, as we're going to get to with job openings. Fickle got to be on the top of everyone's list, despite the fact that he seems to be getting the brand of like, I'm just going to keep waiting for an Ohio-level job. I don't think that's true, not with these elite jobs opening up. right? Miami... At North Carolina, we talked about D.R. King being out. Miami makes a game of this one. North Carolina barely wins 45-42. Yeah, you know, Miami, that was a good effort from them, but they also did some inexplicably bad stuff at the end of the game too. I don't know. You can't feel good about them right now if you're a Miami fan, if there are any out there. No, there there aren't. They all go to FIU if there are any out there, right? Texas A&M, my lock of the week, eight and a half point favorites over Missouri, win handily, 35-14. Missouri, who I remain fearful of, that's lessening by a lot. I mean, they just can't stop anybody. No, Missouri is trending in the wrong direction, right? TCU at number four, Oklahoma. I When I saw this, I thought, I didn't actually pick TCU. Why would I do that? I was a huge believer in... And Caleb Williams, I don't don't know what I did, but I did the wrong thing as Oklahoma wins 52-31. Yeah, Oklahoma was ready to just kind of ride off a couple weeks ago. There's no way they're going to make the playoff. They're going to lose two, three games the way they're playing. It's a miracle they hadn't lost yet. Now look really, really tough. All right, number 10, Michigan State. My other lock of the week, Michigan State, as we like to call the fighting Chester Kimbrough's Favored by just four and a half in Indiana, and whoo, they sweated this one out, Allen. 20 to 15, they get the win and the cover. So both of my locks, hopefully you bet big on, they win. Michigan State is a good win for them. I, it's funny, all these uh, Big Ten teams, you know, I remain skeptical of Iowa. Um, and, we, you know, we're not even in the, they weren't in the recap because they were playing Purdue. They lost. I, I'm not. I think Michigan State is solid. I don't know if they're the tenth best team in the country. No, they're definitely not. As as we learned with Iowa, which we'll talk about in a second. But they're a nice story right now, and I'm going to enjoy Chester Kimbrough getting his moment in the sun. Number twelve, Oklahoma State, who you picked. I love Mike Gundy. I told I told Texas flat out. I told them I cursed him. Right, Texas was favored by five point five. I picked him, and I said, "I'm sorry, Texas. You're going to lose again." And they blew it again. Losing 32-24, blowing another lead in the second half. Oklahoma State's defense is legit. Which is and, crazy. And Texas say, that, say that one more time. One more Oklahoma time. State's defense is legit. Let that settle in. That's nuts. I think they're way better than number 12. We'll see what they're going to be positioned when the playoff committee comes For out. sure. If you compare Michigan State, for example, to Oklahoma State, I think there's no doubt Oklahoma State is a better football team. All right, Auburn. Hmm. Our buddy, Chris Chris Musgrove, Grover, as we call him, who's been chronicling every move from Auburn each week, all the internal movements, who's getting hired, fired, just a very different vibe at Auburn, gets a early program momentum-building win here against Arkansas. 38-23, Bo Nix's best game yeah, as an Auburn Tiger. You know, I didn't feel good about this one. We both went with Arkansas getting points here. Bo Nix, you know, he's... He has a great game. I don't know if he'll be able to repeat it, but yeah, they played really well. They look good. Were you su- how surprised were you by that? 
You know, I was very surprised at, at what Bo Nix was able to do because obviously I feel like he's been a guy who just you could count on not passing well, but it's clear that the Brian Harson effect right now is real on him. You know, Gus Malzahn runs a kooky all over the place. I say it's a very, let's call it a not NFL style quarterback friendly <laughs> offense to be friendly. And I think Brian Harson with his very detail oriented pro style approach is working. And I think Bo Nix was proving hey i am talented and now that i have an idea of what's happening and i'm doing things that fit my skill set more that was strong stuff now we need to see what happens more in the future but i think it's safe to say that so far some of the gambles that harson's taken he fired obviously his wide receivers coach he's done some things here early on saber rattling um you know first time i think since 2017 alan that they've had back-to-back sec road wins at that program so keep an eye on auburn the toughest part of their schedule though yet to come indeed They've had a hard schedule this year. All right, number 11, Kentucky. The game of the week for some people. On the road against Georgia, Stetson Bennett was a starter. The line was 23 and a half, Allen. UGA gets the win, but does not get the cover. Thoughts on this one? Yeah, the uh, the the last second touchdown with, I think, four seconds left, Kentucky scores to uh, ruin everybody's picks. Spiteful. Spiteful. Uh, they, they called timeout to get this done. They wanted it. They wanted it. I mean, this was... UGA is just a bad matchup for most people, but especially for teams like UK and Arkansas. They just could do nothing. I mean, this is what I expected. I mean, backup quarterback. You know, it is it is what it is. You know, like UGA is just that much better and, and styles make fights, and this was not a good fight. No, it was not. And in and, and general, UGA's defense, again, if you were sleeping on it early, some people thought that hey, they just played Clemson, they just played these teams. Just watch them on film. That defense is ridiculous. And again, that that's not 13 points uh, that they really scored legitimately. They scored a garbage, a garbage touchdown there. But either way, UGA for real. I still think with Stetson Bennett, I think he's a game manager. You can win with a defense like that, especially this year. But I have questions if, if they're able to win it all. They're my favorite still by far. Sure. But I think they're going to need a JT Daniels at some point to be healthy and, and completing some higher level passes than what Stetson is able to do against, I think, some other premier competition. So I'll just say this. We didn't really talk about this yet, and we're obviously going to talk about Georgia next week. Correct. I don't I'll whisper this into the microphone. I don't hate our chances at the cocktail party. If you've got Anthony Richardson, and obviously we've shown that we can do things to Stetson Bennett. It's the same coordinator. Even if we don't fire Ty Grantham. If Richardson is playing and starting, I don't think it's a slam dunk. And it's, Stetson is it's playing. It's definitely not a slam dunk on any given Sunday. But, but that's yeah, how Stetson, everyone's treating it right now. Well, I mean, it's hard. And, to, and I don't blame them for that. Well, they're treating it because it was Emory Jones' quarterback. I think as people start to zoom in more on what Richardson's capable of. We'll, we'll see. I don't think that's going to be the trend line in the national media. It's going to be no. Florida's in disarray. They're going to get dunked on. And we yeah. might. Yeah. Well, that defense is still going to give people problems. But sure. Florida does with Richardson, the way he was looking around the field and seeing things. Different challenge though in Georgia, as I will break down. Oh, this defense for sure, is, for sure. is absolutely. But I don't, I don't feel guilty. like we're totally out of it. And I could, I wouldn't have said that coming out of the before the LSU game. Sure. Oh yeah. Well, we yeah. I mean, we were we were kind of pointing to this all along with Emory. There was no chance you beat the Georgias of the world with Richardson. You can. You have a ceiling ability where you can do it, and that's why you want to play that guy. Right. Number five, Alabama, Mississippi State. Oh, Mike Leach just not ready for these games yet. Forty nine to nine, Bama handles them easily. Again, this is one of those things where, I mean, I think a Mike Leach Mississippi State team who's like loaded up 
can stop an Alabama team enough. And this Mississippi State defense has been pretty good and can move the ball enough. But it's hard. You have to have everything going right for you because, I mean, Saban knows what you're doing. You know that he knows what you're doing. It, it's just there's not a lot there. Yeah, and that's one of the problems, of course. I love the air raid, but I think you have to use it in a multiple offensive set, just using it as Mike Leach does against an, a, a, a superior opponent is almost impossible. Ole Miss on the road to Tennessee. This was probably the game of the this weekend. This was wild. This game was insanely well played. Look, Tennessee with Heupel, he's getting it done right now. It's it's kind of fun. We were kind of the first because we played them early. They lost to Pitt. People were sleeping there to say, look, on film, this team is good. And Pitt has turned out to be... And Pitt turns out to be good. And their yeah. quarterback was good. But on film, on offense and defense, we said it. This is a good football team. And I think people are believing that now. That makes me happy. As, as B-Red says here, my favorite team couldn't keep it together in Knoxville. Close, so close. Allen, of course, they get stopped on a fourth and twenty-four. It looks, it looked to me like they should have had it. Instant replay says they didn't get it, and then the Tennessee fans. This is why I love them. This is not classy. They shouldn't do it, but they care, and they lose their minds and start throwing everything onto the field. The game is delayed for a long time. The cheerleaders have to leave. The band has to leave because they're getting hit. And this is the Tennessee band, and cheerleaders have to leave. This is wild. I was watching this, and it's just you see. Lane Kiffin holding up the golf ball. <laughs> it's unreal. And it's then hilarious. Tennessee gets the ball back. And unfortunately, Joe Milton, who had played so well, hurts his ankle. And then in comes Hooker. And Hooker inexplicably on fourth down. Reverse that. On the, oh, sorry. The other way around. Not, yeah. Milton comes back in, who was And a runs out of bounds in the last and play And in game. the last play of the game, they're only rushing two, which I thought was insane. Ole Miss is rushing two. And Tennessee's, Tennessee's on the 20-yard line. They're on the 20-yard line. They're rushing two and dropping nine. And he just on his own accord... Rolls out to the left and just runs for 12 yards and runs out of bounds. Game over. Doesn't even throw it. Has all day. I don't know. That was nuts. That was a horrible I mean, way for Tennessee. This is, this is, I, I don't think I could play a guy, no matter how talented it is, who would do something like that. Yeah. You, brutal. You have to throw the ball what up in the thinking? air. Put the ball in the end zone. You got to, I mean, that was such a sad way for Tennessee to go down and obviously a really sad way for Hooker, who played so well. Yeah. So well on that game. And Tennessee now, you know, what happens this week? Hooker, that looked bad. Mm-hmm. Obviously, Milton not in the but same But I think they were also reacting to some plays earlier. Earlier, the they lost a fumble six that they felt like should have went their way. Yeah, which was a weird one. Funky calls. Uh, and needless to say, I think Tennessee fans, as frustrated as they are, are feeling better than they have felt in a long yeah. time I, right Again, the, the jury's out for me on whether Hypo can do this long-term because can he recruit at a, a level that's that is long-term? The but right now, he makes them much more interesting. Yeah, for sure. And I think, again, they have good coaches on both sides of the ball. Lastly, Lane Kiffin. We said this before. Is it possible hmm. Lane Kiffin has become one of the more likable, charismatic coaches in the I country? hate that I kind of like him. But it's honestly, it's true. And look, I didn't like him at all. And I'm, I'm Oh, I hate him when he was at Tennessee. Right? And he, he was a clown. He was a D-bag. But... This is someone who is is either just faked it really well, or I think he's I think he's hum, I think he's a lot more humble. It's it's hard to say he's not because of how he handles himself. He holds himself lightly, but man, the guy is just full of like well, entertainment. He's, he's and legit charisma. funny. He's funny, and he's willing to laugh at himself a little bit. Yes. which I don't think he probably would have been able to do. before. No way, and he supports his team really well. He says great things about them, even when he's frustrated. Mm. He's animated on the sideline. He's living and dying with every play. He saves the golf ball that's thrown at him, and the I mean. The guy is entertaining. I mean, so he just is entertaining. If there was some like, okay, what about Lane Kiffin as a candidate last hiring round? I was like, if we hire we both Lane said Kiffin, it. No I'm way. Out. I'm quitting. I'm yeah. out. It's different now. It's kind of funny. It's different now. It's weird. He's changed. People can change. All right. So Daytona Steve was on a hard reset because we accidentally 
didn't look at his picks. We thought he was on a hard reset. He didn't message us. We thought so he, he did reset one himself. week. We, we sent him on a Tuesday, yeah, two-week reset. But that's fine. He is going to be back this week. We have his picks. They're queued up right here. We will get to them here in just a few minutes. Okay, well, just the rest of the SEC roundup. A&M handles Missouri. As we said, yeah. Okay, we'll double that up there. Uh, Vanderbilt? Man. They had a win almost. They had a win almost. South Carolina, who just looks bad. But good for South Carolina fans. I mean, for being they, like, some gays, but this is no, really bad. bad look. They're bad, but good for South Carolina fans, like being into the game there. Oh, sure. like, I think they they're recognize they're in the middle of like a colossal rebuild, which they are. They're way down talent wise, and they're there. They celebrate. They were excited for a win over Vanderbilt. Good for them. Sure, uh, they've been great fans for a long time. Yeah. So good, good, good fan base there. Uh, Iowa. Ooh. Man, you know, losing Allen. to the Boilermakers can happen. Ask Ohio State from a couple years ago. But this was bad. At this home. is what happens when you don't have an offense and you yes. you don't get like five turnovers. Yes. Yes. But they lose 24-7 at home. Yeah. They also a ruined, bad team, but they also ruined the nine-team college football parlay I had that was going to pay out like seven to one. And that was the only loss I had. And I knew that I so basically my strategy, I don't publish these. My strategy for parlays is I bet generally bet the money line. I generally take teams I think are definitely going to win, and I pick one or maybe two games that are interesting. Michigan State was my more coin flip game. This one, though, was not monetarily a coin flip game, but because what we said last week was I was not the number two team in the country. That's completely false. And Purdue was somewhat dangerous, but this was like, this was wild. I almost Allen. put it they in, but I didn't think rushed Iowa. that Purdue would be able to do this. No, that was the crazy part. Sure, they could lose a close one. They just handled them. So that was frustrating. All right, you have a note on here. I didn't know this. I'm kidding, obviously. But there's a job opening at LSU that seems to be getting the country going. Again, USC and now LSU. A lot of talk. Jimbo Fisher is being mentioned. Do you buy into that at all? I mean, if you're Jimbo, I mean, who who publicly like said he's not going anywhere, which, you know, doesn't mean anything for coaches. But I don't see the avenue for him going. I mean, is LSU really going to pay him more than A&M? And also, do you really want Jimbo there? It, it's a weird moment right now. The guys you always see thrown out, Fickle, Cristobal, other people. I don't, I don't, there's no obvious this is the right guy for me. This is not a cycle that has a Urban Meyer or even like a Tom Herman who didn't work out, but was the obvious slam dunk kind of hire. So you might see them ultimately turning towards like a Billy Napier at Louisiana kind of a thing. But, you know, the rep on their AD Scott Woodward is that he likes to go big, you know, big splashy hires. I just don't know who that would be for them. Who knows? Stay tuned. But I want to ask you this question about Jimbo Fisher. So if you're Jimbo Fisher and it's possible to leave, mm-hmm. which I don't, it's, I don't think it's really possible. The optics would be so bad. Like everything about it's too bad. The money, whatever. But let's just assume you could. It's you're just or let's go with this. You're a free agent. You're Jimbo Fisher, the free agent. You're choosing between Texas A&M and LSU. That's a better example. Which one would you choose? LSU. For sure. Why? Well, they're the only school in their state which produces a lot of talent. That's that's the reason why. Passionate right? fan base. You have all the resources. A&M, though, it's not that far behind. They just don't have, like, no. oh, you've won championships there. But there's no reason they shouldn't win championships. No, they can. But L- I think you hit it, though. The gold mine of LSU is what you just said. The last Un- three coaches who have coached there have won national won- And that's unbelievable because those coaches are Ed Orgeron, dumpster fire. Again, I put him in my top ten because – he fires people and tries to win. Less miles, mm-hmm. horrific, right? I mean, like relatively speaking, like these are not like football savant guys. And obviously Nick Saban, who's 
He was a savant. But at the end of the day, LSU, and, and really, you got to really think about this. LSU and Georgia are probably the two most well-located recruiting schools in the country right now because they have the least competition for their in-state recruits because their, their recruits just go to those schools. Like, it's unbelievable how many Louisiana kids LSU keeps. It's unreal. And no other state has that advantage. So I think if you're Jimbo, you look at it and think, if it was possible, that's your best well, chance possible, to win as a coach. But I think what you're, you're kind of starting over again. I, yeah. It's it's not a free agent situation. No, it's but, not. I'm saying as a free agent. It, sure. I don't think it's going to happen in the realistic world. But I mean, that's why LSU is so compelling to anybody. You can you will always have top six or seven talent. I mean, pretty much no matter who you are, you're going to have that. And it's not going to be hard for you to get it. You're not going to have to go crazy recruiting everyone to get it. It's just going to be there. That's an amazing advantage. Okay. A little bit of news here. You probably saw the injury to Trent Whittemore. He was in a boot. Obviously, Florida. There's no press conference today, if you didn't know, because it's a bye week. So we don't have any new info on that. But that's going to hurt Florida if he's going to miss time. He does a lot of stuff for them. Yeah, he's a, he's a huge loss. Maybe he's, the best quarterback in the team, you know, two for two. Two for two, yeah. He's like our chess piece, though, that we move around a lot. Yeah. We don't really traditionally use an H-back. We'll use our tight ends a little bit like you might use an H-back. But Whittemore kind of functions that role sometimes as far as like being the piece you move a lot to gain attention. Yeah. And then uh, B-Red lets us know that AR's NIL deals, mid-six figures, the market values them more than Mullen. <laughs> Which is uh, funny. But, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's going to skyrocket, obviously. Yeah. If, if and Spencer Rattler's got a lot of deals, too. So it doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to be great. It but. doesn't. And also, a lot of those deals are incentive-based. So when you see them, it doesn't mean they actually have that as guaranteed money. So keep that in mind. But either way, hey, look, I love AR. That guy's been a champion of Gainesville. He loves his community. By all accounts, living in Gainesville, and people only have great things to say about him. So... Wish him all the success. Okay, let's look at week eight. You ready? I'm ready. Week eight, not as good as previous weeks. We'll no. tell you that right now. The slate, that is. LSU at number 12, Ole Miss. LSU has just fired their coach. Who's still going to be on the sidelines. Who will still he's, be there. He's a lame duck like Ron Zook. But, you know, Ed Orgeron has a lot of success as an interim coach. Maybe more success than Ed Orgeron as the head coach in some scenarios. So, uh, Ole Miss favored by 10.5. This is interesting because Ole Miss's defense is so, so bad. Mm -hmm. They did play better against Tennessee. They did. Tennessee's offense is good, and I respect it. And because of that, I'm going to take Ole Miss to get above this 10.5-point line. I don't like this line. LSU is too unpredictable, but I'm going to go Ole Miss with you. I I think Ole Miss is going to keep scoring. I don't see LSU slowing them down at all. No, they shouldn't, especially because, like we said, on the back end, this is a nightmare matchup for LSU. Their secondary is in shambles, and Ole Miss is going to pick on them relentlessly. I wonder if Ole Miss defensively is going to study the counterplay. Oh, I think they're going to spend the entire week making sure they can <laughs> stop the counterplay. All right, speaking of Tennessee, Tennessee at number four, Alabama, which says it's weird to call them number four. That seems so wrong. Yeah. Um, everybody. 27 and a half. Does that feel too big to you? That feels way too big. This Tennessee team can score. They can Does move this feel the like football, a Hendon Hooker kind of line? But though? yes, that's the that's the problem is, you know, the Joe the Joe Milton Hendon Hooker battle. Um and really that means the health, obviously, of Hooker at this stage, who I think has become, like we said, you know, really just the better quarterback. He looked like he was hurt. I have not seen the news, but if it's Joe Milton who they thought was a better thrower, but also inexplicably ran out of bounds. I don't know what Tennessee's going to get. They had found something I don't know here. But 27 and a half, 
still feels like a lot to me. I like Tennessee. They're sound on both sides of the football. I'm going to take them in this one. Not to win, obviously, but just to not lose by more than 27 and a half. I'm going to take Bama. I respect that. If this you're betting, just feels like when in doubt. If you're betting, bet on Allen. He's been winning this year. That's the right choice. <laughs> okay. NC State, number 18, who maybe is in control of their destiny here. Unreal. Uh, of the whatever division Powerful they're in. Powerful ACC division. I don't know the Coastal. ACC divisions. I can never memorize them. Yeah. Favored by three and a half at Miami. I'm going to take NC State here. In Miami, you know, the wheels are falling off, I feel like, there. So NC State's a team that plays close football games, but I'm going to take them. Three and a half is low enough. I'll take them on the road there. All right, number 14, Coastal Carolina, who we've not talked about. They were the hot team last year. Still undefeated. Number 14. Only favored by three and a half going to App State. App State's good this year, obviously. But Coastal Carolina returned almost their entire roster from last year thanks to the COVID rules. And when in doubt, take a team like Coastal Carolina over another good team like App State. That's my rule here. I'll join you there. I it's weird that they've gotten so little press. I mean, they were funny because they were playing everybody at the last minute, too. They were great. That's what I think boosted their profile. Profile, for mm-hmm. sure. Um, they don't really have a lot of like high-profile games left. This is maybe the most This is a big one for high them. profile. Mm-hmm. So they're going to be focused on this one. I think they'll come away with it. All right. One of the games of the day, number eight, Oklahoma State. At Iowa State. Iowa State favored by seven? One of those crazy bookmaker things here. It makes sense though. This is this is this is it, Alan. This is where Vegas looks at common history, common games, matchups, all the data and analytics to give you just what is the kookiest of all lines. How is the number eight team in the country, Oklahoma State, who moved up four spots from last week to this week, go on the road to Iowa State and get seven points? I mean, okay, layup. I'm going to take Oklahoma State there. You know, thinking about this game, I I was like, well, Oklahoma State, certainly. Um, This line has totally spooked me. It's like, what does Vegas know? And I, I think Iowa State will be in this game. I think it will be close. But it feels impossible to give them points against Oklahoma State. That's That's – Crazy, right? It seems crazy. I know you checked the line there because you were doubting that. It I was looked right. at myself. I was like, Did "But I... the point is, it's right. That's what it is. It's nuts." Man, I just can't. Oklahoma State's been too good defensively. I'm gonna have to stay with them. Oh, that's smart. I hate the hate. I hate to do that to the clones. No, but the clones have fallen off this year. All right, we've got a few undefeated teams left that we want to talk about, even though they're not in the best of games. Northwestern at number six, Michigan. Are you believing in Michigan? They are favored by 21 and a half. I'm believing in Michigan's schedule they've played thus far. Their real games will start coming. Um, better season than people expected. But again, their their season will be defined by after this one, the next remaining games. Almost all of them are going to matter. There's one more I think they get that is uh, favorable for the most part. So I'll take, I'll take Michigan here. This is a lot, but I, Northwestern, they haven't quite put it together this year. They haven't. And if this line was any bigger, I would take Northwestern here. I like Michigan at this number. I think it's just another one of those bad matchups for Northwestern for what Michigan likes to do. All right. We've been the same mostly here. We'll see how it goes forward. Number 16, Wake Forest, still undefeated. Class of the ACC. Favorite by three at Army. Just feeling? Class. Just let that settle in. Class of the ACC, favored by three at Army. 
That's where the ACC is. I love the Wake Forest story, though, and, and despite the fact that they play close games and they win at the end every single time and three points is like, are they going to win by a field goal or are they going to win by a last-second touchdown? I'm going to go if they win by a last-second touchdown here and cover the spread. Man, I hate picking against them, but I'm, I'm going to go Army here. It's a good choice. That's that's the that's the uh, Sharps choice right there for sure. Maybe the most interesting game because of not the team you think. Clemson at number 23 Pitt. Unranked Clemson. Unranked Clemson. At number 23 Pitt. Favored by Pitt favored by three. Dewey walked down the road of betting on Pitt, which always ends disastrously for people. I mean, this is crazy. Clemson's defense is still really good. But look, at the end of the day, Clemson is who Clemson is. Like They are going to hold all of these teams to 14 or 17 or so points, period. I don't care who you are. That's what you're going to score on them. And that's what makes this really tough is Pitt has an outstanding quarterback. Clemson can't move the ball at all. But are they able to score 21 points? Is that a possibility? Or is it 17-14? I don't know. I just I believe in quarterbacks. Football's a quarterback-oriented game. And I think right now, three points to a vastly inferior pit team. This feels wrong. But look, I'm a big believer that you have to look at observed evidence and data in real time. And who cares what our preconceived notions were preseason this Clemson team is what they've been putting out there and that's not a great football team so I'm gonna go Pitt I'm with you on this if it was just straight up I'm definitely picking Pitt the the points here I think it will be close I could see this being a one point a 21-20 kind of game so I don't love it but I, I like pick to win for sure all right number 10 Oregon who's been man they've been winning some close wins close games at UCLA UCLA favored by one and a half yeah, this is interesting too. I, I obviously you've you've seen me get this far. I do not have a lock of the week listed yet. From the games we selected here, none of these games are locks to me. I'm not just going to arbitrarily give you one because there isn't one. And if I scour the college football landscape, I could find some games that I liked a lot, but those are not as compelling to you, the viewer. This one is is really crazy. I don't really trust Oregon and Crystal Ball. Um, Chip Kelly's played them well, but. One and a half points is also meaningless. Like, what does that really give you? Nothing. You're basically to pick them. So is Oregon going to beat UCLA at UCLA? That's your question. I don't believe in either of these teams at a high level. So I will take the higher powered team, the team with better players in Oregon. I'll join you again. I mean, it doesn't feel like UCLA has earned my trust enough to be favored against a team like Oregon, but I wouldn't. I'm not like, oh, slam dunk Oregon's got this either. I mean, again, I almost all these games go into a stay away category for me. I don't like any of them. Really. No, it's tough. I, yeah, not in love here. This is going to be either. either a good week or a brutal week for both of us because we're, we're, we're locked together. in. We're locked in. All right. Daytona Steve. He's back, Alan. He's, he's after a hard reset, we talked and we thought through some things and said, you know, here's what I want to do I want to give you a realistic parlay. I want to give you the home run parlay, and I want to give you my lock. And that's what he did. So first up, we have the three-gamer, three-game parlay. Coastal Carolina, favored by three and a half at App State. Old Miss, favored by nine and a half at LSU. And Utah, favored by three at Oregon State. Odds of that parlay hitting is six to one. That's a nice three-team parlay odds-wise. Bet accordingly. The zesty parlay, the big one. This one, Allen, with odds of 172 to one. Same line for Coastal Carolina. Add in Wake Forest minus three at Army, Oklahoma State, there it is, plus seven at Iowa State. He's on that one with us. 
Old Miss again, minus 9.5 at LSU. He loves that pick. Fresno State, minus three at Nevada. Virginia, minus seven at Georgia Tech, or versus Georgia Tech, rather. And then UTSA, minus seven at Louisiana Tech, followed by Utah, minus three at Oregon State. So Old Miss and Utah, two favorite teams, which gives him the lock of Old Miss, minus nine and a half versus LSU. So there it is. There's your picks. Those will be posted for Daytona Steve. Hopefully he will hit all three of them after the hard reset and re emerge the champion that we all know he is okay just other items here we've talked about the live event in classic gnfp fashion we've decided to punt on that um to next season there just wasn't really a good weekend to do that but thanks for your feedback on that i think we are very interested in doing it in the future it just didn't line up for us to be able to do it this season with the schedule um and the home games that were on it so yeah i guess stay tuned we'll, we'll talk about it again next year and and see if we can make it happen yeah, for sure. Thanks for your feedback on that. I think it will happen. We want to make it good and not just something where we're like, let's just slap it together for this season. Of course, we said that about merch and we're like two years down the merch <laughs> hole. But maybe one day I really want all of you to be sporting some GNFP stuff. That would warm my heart. All right, Alan, that's all I've got. Uh, anything left for you? No, let's close this puppy down. Do it. All right. Thanks, everybody. Very appreciate all of you. Enjoy your off week. We'll get you ready for those dogs. See you later.